It's 4 p.m. Stand up. It's count time. It's time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted. I'm Brother L.D. Azobra. I'd like to welcome you to another edition of Count Time Podcast. This is another one of these great days. Uh, an awesome guest. He is one of our living legends. <laughs> he is truly a legend. Uh, he's an author, professor. He's got so many different titles. And he's also now the chairman of the, at LSU University, the African, African-American Studies Program that had just become a full-fledged department. That's right. Right at a year ago. That's right. Uh, I think I was at the ceremony when y'all made that. The, the launch program, the launch you program, sure were. Which was done first class. Thank and, you. Uh, and you. And you had your mentor there to speak. That's right. So that was a wonderful uh, event. So we got here today. Dr. Stephen Finley, welcome to Countdown. Thank you, Brother LD, and thank you uh, uh, for being in my home, and I hope you feel welcome. Oh, man, I, I truly do. I thank you for having me here today. And there's, uh, I mean, you've got so many different dynamics that we could come from here, but we're going to focus on this, 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 uh, this wonderful book that you've written. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I'm quite a living legend, but, <laughs> yeah, but, like, but I appreciate that. Uh, you know, and, uh, and we, and we are excited to have you here because there's so many different things. And also, <clears throat> it's the time of, uh, let me see, your book is written, it's about the NIO, the mm-hmm. Nation of Islam. NOI, that's right. Now, so, the, now, NOI, right, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. NOI, and I'm curious, let me first ask you, are you a practicing Muslim? No. No, this is all research for me. It's all research. So this Correct. Not, you're not a you're not a practicing Muslim. You've never been part of the Nation of Islam. Never. But you 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 kind of like what they've been doing, or you just kind of focus. Sure. On, uh, I, I have friends in the in the Nation of Islam, um, many of whom are also professors and scholars, oh, right. by the way. But a few others are uh, just members of the Nation of Islam who are actually pretty significant, uh, like Ilya Rashad, who I consider a friend, who's part of the research department of the Nation of Islam. And, um, and he has uh, written a book himself, uh, as members of the Nation of Islam often do, on the Nation of Islam and UFOs. And that's how, that's how we connected. But this book here is on a whole nother level. I appreciate uh, that. I'm telling you, look, <laughs> and the title of the book is uh, In and Out of This World. And it really is. <laughs> How you say that? It's, it's celestials, it's esoteric. Uh-huh. Material uh, and extraterrestrial bodies yeah. in the Nation of Islam yeah. is the secondary title. Right. So, I mean, I, we got to figure out what all that means. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I hope I, I can unpack that for you. And, and I wanted to make sure I understood because, you know, uh, you know, the book is about the Nation of Islam. And you sitting up here, you know, pious and sophisticated with hey, the bow tie on. Hey, I love the bow ties. <laughs> <laughs> So I wanted to just make sure. I've been wearing bow ties for about 25 years. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. So that's just part of your, your uh, Yeah. That's your attire. A, that's right. That's right. So, so yeah, nothing to do with being the, the nation of Islam or nothing to do with No, it's just my, just my personal style. All right. You, well, you brother, the brother got some style, too. I appreciate that. A lovely home, and thank you for having me over sure. here today. But this book here, let's get a little background of Stephen. Finley. Sure. Okay, Doc. So, how did you? You in Louisiana now? You got a out here in a nice little neighbor, wonderful neighborhood in the in the country, but mm-hmm. it's a beautiful area. Mm-hmm. Now, what brought you to Louisiana? Where are you from originally? Well, let me first say that this area used to be far more country. I've been here 15 years now, and this is one of the the most uh, developing areas 
uh, of Southern Louisiana. I mean, it's really growing. And uh, I came here specifically for the job at Louisiana State University, where I've been since 2008. And I was a graduate student then. Oh, you're a graduate student? I wasn't even finished. So I was full time still trying to complete a dissertation uh, within within that first year and um, appointed to two different units at the time, religious studies and African and African American studies. Now, that, that, we, now that's going to be interesting. Now, we, we can't wait till we get to okay. that. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. All right. And um, this is the second place uh, that I've lived in, you know, in this particular area. And um, when I first moved here in 2008, I lived in an apartment. Um, not far from here, and I was just driving through this area and decided this is where I wanted to live. And after about seven years in that house, I decided I needed much more quiet and privacy. I'm an introvert, you know. I can't believe that. Yeah, it's true. It's <laughs> true. So built this home about eight years ago uh, here in the in the in the back of this development. All right. Okay. Now where? Your upbringing, the old folks say, where did yeah. you grow up at? Yeah, I meant to say something about that. I grew up in uh, Southern California. California? Primarily Santa Ana, California, but also Los Angeles when I was younger. And, and you know, Southern California was part of those migrations from Texas. All right. And so I had relatives on both sides of my family, in largely in South Central, Los Angeles, uh, on my mother's well, and my father's Texas, side. What part of Texas did you Well, those folks came from mostly North Texas and East Texas, and I still have relatives in East Texas, and uh, my father lives in Houston. And so, you know, again, that was part of the mi migration. Folks from North and East Texas went to uh, mostly Southern California and Los Angeles, and folks from Louisiana went to Oakland. Okay. Now what? <laughs> I went to Oakland too. See? I, and I hate to say that, but a lot of my people, that's, that's See? where they are. But that's what I'm saying. What high school you went to? I went to a high school called Los Amigos High School is in Fountain Valley, California. Los Amigos? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, Southern California has a strong Spanish influence, mm -hmm. uh, as you know. And uh, most of the African-Americans were from Santa Ana, like I was. Fountain Valley back then was really white and affluent. But most of the African-American and Latino students were from Santa Ana, where I was from. And because of where we lived in Santa Ana, we had to go to this other school in Fountain Valley, California. All right. Now, what was it like growing up in California? California was, was interesting. It, it was a lot of fun. The weather was obviously beautiful. The, the geography diverse. I love the mountains, the desert, the beaches, the valley. And, and of course, you know, that proximity to Hollywood means that you're, you're likely to know people who are also in the industry. And that was the case for me. You know, lots of friends I had were in entertainment and um, uh, music and, and so on. So you, so you, you, didn't, you didn't grow up in the, in the gang infested areas? Well, I lived there. Uh, I lived in Watts and South Central. Oh. As, as a child, but even in Santa Ana, California. Santa Ana is only about 10, 15 minutes from Long Beach, okay. even though it's in Orange County. And it was the only place in Orange County where you had a significant black population. So there were thousands of African-Americans in Santa Ana, California. So you also did have gangs, both black, Latino, and other gangs. And so I actually grew up uh, seeing some of that too, and actually had some cousins who were who were gangbangers too. But you weren't a gangbanger. No, what, no, what, I wasn't what, a gangbanger. Well, how, how did you get away from that? Well, I mean, it's gang culture influences all of us. So even as a young person, 
when I was thinking about, you know, what it meant to be a young black man, I mean, that's what I saw. And so in many ways, I think I, I admired the culture. I mean, you know, you see all these young, young black men, they seem cohesive, they're tight, they act like family. And the same gang that one of my cousins eventually joined uh, was the gang that I saw. And, you know, I mean, I mean, I would dress like it a little bit every now and then, but, but it's really influential. If you grow up there, it's hard not to be influenced by the culture. Okay. okay, but you didn't really no. engage in it? No, no, I wasn't okay. a gangbanger okay. or anything like that. But I mean, but you always claim your neighborhood, Okay, though. but you said so yours, yours, you was Crip or your blood on your side? No, well, so there were both where I lived. Um, it was a gang called uh, Watergate, uh, was the most influential gang. They were, they were Crips. And then there was a blood gang called Shelley Street, which was right behind my aunt, where my aunt lived in Santa Ana, California. But I think the, the gang that I saw the most was, was Watergate, Watergate Crips, they called them. And that's the gang my cousin was in. Now, give a little bit about your you know, brothers and sisters, mom and dad. I have one sister, um, but I also have a uh, half-brother who lives in Houston. And I had three stepbrothers and three stepsisters. Mm -hmm. And just within the last two or three years, I lost uh, three of them. Uh, lost three? Step-siblings, including a stepsister who just died last week. Oh, okay then, okay now. Your sister, what's her name? Sonia. Sonia. Uh -huh. Now, your mom, your, your, your mom, what's her name, man? You give your mom and dad name. My mother's name is Hattie, which, you Hattie. know, that, that's a real southern name. Hattie. I mean, Hattie. but she's from Hattie. East Texas. <laughs> she's from East Texas. <laughs> okay, then. Right? And she's named after her grandmother, Hattie Devereaux, who got the name of the plantation owner there, uh, uh, the Devereaux, who owned the, uh, the Monte Verde plantation there in East Texas. Well, you know your history. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean it's it's always been I don't take anything from my uh, in my life for granted. So I mean I know the name of the, the crystal I drink out of. I know the history of my family. <laughs> well, that I can tell you who the art I mean everything has to be meaningful for me. And uh, and that's that's the way I live my life. And so my father was was from Waxahachie, Texas. And um, I'm not sure how they met, but I think it was in Waxahachie because I had relatives on both sides of my family, including my grandmother. Okay. Uh, and my great-grandfather actually started a church there. And so that, that's probably where they met. And that's, that's near Dallas, Texas. They're still, they still uh, among us? My mother and father are, are living. Um, my mother left Texas really early, so my earliest memories are of Los Angeles. Okay. Uh, but since then, she has moved uh, back to the, the Dallas area. And my father is still living in Houston. Oh, all right, then. Well, that's pretty good. But this man, he knows his, his history. <laughs> but I said that's very important. Yeah, you know, it is. A lot of us, we don't know the backstory or the history of all. And I've been really intentional about, about <clears throat> tracing my family. I mean, that is really important to me. So through my grandmother, uh, and she's a Lee, comes from the Lee family. Her father was George Feldon Lee, who was the uh, superintendent of the uh, Waxahachie District of the Church of God in Christ there uh, in that area. His uh, parents came from Tennessee. He, he came from Tennessee right around 1920, 1921. His parents and grandparents were actually enslaved in Madison County, Tennessee. I'm telling you, I have, to, I have to take it seriously. I mean, you wanna know who you are, then, you know, and, and this is of course what makes my life uh, much more meaningful. I, mean, I didn't just drop out of the sky, right? right. right? And um, and his relatives were uh, enslaved there in Dyersburg, Tennessee. Okay. So his parents, uh, uh, Barney Lee, 
and Frances Summers Lee were actually enslaved there and their parents were actually on property records. Uh, that's the only thing I know about them. I've seen them on property records uh, because they were enslaved there in Dyersburg, Tennessee. From Tennessee, Texas, California. Now you, now you end up in the real LA. <laughs> that, that's right. <laughs> the Louisiana. That's right, that's right. <laughs> now, what brought you to Louisiana? Well, in 2008, I was still uh, finishing up my dissertation and I was still a graduate student. I started there uh, at Rice University in 2002 as the first PhD student that they had had in the Department of Religion. The first one of us. That, that's right, the first African-American okay, graduate student. I meant to say, if I, if I didn't mention that, then, yeah, then got, I, that, I apologize, that, I slipped up. That's because that's the point right there. That's important. And in 2008, 2007, I went on the market. In 2008, I had uh, six job offers, and I decided that LSU would be better for me, in part because of the weather, and it was a research school, and proximity to relatives in Texas. Okay. All of that was important to me. And, and it's part of the Bible Belt in your religious well, study. Well, I mean, that, that's, probably, that's probably significant, but I haven't done much work in Christian traditions, okay. and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about that a little okay. more. Now, now how do a brother, his family come from a plantation in Texas? You end up in California. Yep. You're around, I mean, you're around everything you can imagine. So how do you get into religious? What, what, what point in time you said, I want to study religion? I mean, what, what was that mindset? What got you to that place? Well, Brother LD, that's a really important question. You know, how I got or became interested in the study of religion. Like, like I said, on both sides of my family, they were religious. My great-grandfather you know, founded uh, a church in the Church of God in Christ in Waxahachie, Texas, and, and from what I understand, pastored four different churches in the area at once. But on the Finley side, which was through my father, there are four or five generations African Methodist Episcopal. So religion was always a, a part of my life. And it, it, it just seemed natural to be interested in African-American religion and culture. It's just something that always excited me that I wanted to know more about. And when I uh, decided that I was going to do PhD studies, initially when I was an undergraduate, I thought I would maybe study psychology. But I was just much more motivated by African-American religion and culture. But all that still go ahead in psychology, philosophy. I, I totally agree. I totally agree. And I've studied some philosophy and some psychology, especially psychoanalysis. Now, where did you get your PhD from? Rice University in Houston, okay. Texas. So I had a master's degree, which I earned from a black school, uh, Virginia Union University. I was there. It's a three-year degree. So you went to Virginia. You went to, I, I went to Virginia went to the from, slave Cal state, the from California. That's state. right. That's right. Okay. And, uh, and I left there in 2002 to start MA, PhD studies at Rice University. So I actually have two master's degrees and a PhD. Now, <clears throat> one thing I have learned, my first exposure to religious study was at LSU. Uh, we had a professor by the name of Dr. Korn, and so he was a uh, Jewish uh, faith, I would guess. Mm -hmm. And you know, that was at the time when I was, you know, I only had one perspective yeah. of religion. Yeah, that was Christianity. That's right. And Dr. Korn didn't. You know, accommodate that. Of course. Theory of course. Of no, he was Jewish studies. Right. I'm sure. So he dismantled your whole 
thought process of religion, yeah. Christianity, yeah. you know, just a whole theory. I don't, I don't know if I had a theory, just my little simple perspective growing up in a Catholic church. Mm-hmm. As a professor now, as a PhD, as a doctor yeah. of, philo- of, of religious study, it's almost, I ain't, I ain't not even put you on, on, that, on, that, on that, in that position of posturing what to, uh, to answer this. But the belief is no longer exists in, in someone like you who, this is what you do. This well, is what your research and study, everything. So how, how did you how did you even come to a place of a, yeah. of a belief? Well, if if we had more time, I would probably dismantle what your Jewish <laughs> studies professor did even further, because for me, oh, okay. belief isn't even uh, a significant part of religion. Oh, religion yeah. has much more to do with with how people make their worlds coherent, how they make their worlds meaningful, such that they can find themselves and locate themselves in it that give them an an ultimate sense of who they are, which means that religion doesn't actually have to have anything to do with gods or institutions or creeds. For some people, athletics can be very religious. It's a way of organizing their their year and their life. Uh, It's a way of of celebrating who they are and transcending themselves. And so from, from my perspective, right, it's hard not to be religious, right, for any of us because all of us seek to make our worlds coherent and meaningful such that we can make sense of who we are in the ultimate sense. And that's how I want to understand religion. But it's also the case that there are religions that have no gods and no creeds, right? There are religions that are are atheistic, certain forms of Buddhism, for example, um, uh, certain forms of nature religion. And I I think in in my work, I, I have to do a lot of explaining because people automatically assume that I study churches and that I'm interested in churches. And I'm, I'm barely interested at all in institutional forms of religion like churches. So that, that, that's, that's what, a, what scholars would define as an institution. Correct. Just no different than the Louisiana State University, Correct. Virginia Tech, Texas Southern, yep. just an institution. That's right, and these institutions have, have creeds, uh, they have all kinds of things. It's, it's, what we, it's what we might call civil religion, right? And so there are ways of being religion. Civil religion. Civil religion. Why, why put the term civil in front of that? Well, it's, it's, I didn't start that concept. <laughs> it's, it's a concept that's been around since, I think, the 1960s called American civil religion, which basically argued that America as a concept itself is religious and should be understood as any other religious practice, uh, just like Buddhism, uh, Christianity, and so on. And so when you think about it, when you think about um, uh, people um, holding in high regard the symbols such as the flag, pledging allegiance to the flag, when you think about the creeds and the constitution, how for some people that's ultimate, all of that is a part of of American civil religion. So... And if you don't believe me that that's significant, try not standing for the oh, Pledge of Allegiance right. or, or, or the... We went through that already. Right, right. We and and you see already. how people react. See how, how, how closely and dearly they hold these things, how significant they are to how they understand themselves and how they'll treat and react you to, you, to you if you don't. So now you go back to what my definition of religion is. The simple thing that you just said is true. 
It's just a continuous practice of something. It is, but it's a continuous practice of something that basically anchors us in the world and gives us a sense of coherence and being and meaning such that we can locate ourselves in that world and come to understand ourselves in the ultimate sense, which means that lots of things can and can be religious and are religious that we would never otherwise understand as religious. And so that's that's so I operate out of out of that kind of understanding. And by the way, theory of religion is one of the things that I specialize in. Right. So so these are the these are the kind of things and ideas to which I give attention in my work. Everything I do, I'm looking for how this might inform how we understand the concept of religion. OK. Now, we, uh, I, the question I asked before in the beginning was about belief. Yes. I had a call. I had a phone call a couple of days ago. Someone was it's a, it's a young lady. She was she was dealing with some concerns and issues of the Bible, you know, her views, her perspective. And she asked me, you know, what is my, you know, what, am I, what is my belief? Like, mm -hmm. why, do, why do I even believe something? I said, well, I'll be honest with you, I'm past that. Yeah. <clears throat> Once you know something, you have no need to believe it anymore. Sure, sure. But the other thing is in religion, you know, all religion treats doctrine and belief as fact. And so even they'll say that, they'll, they'll call it knowledge rather than belief. But what I'm saying is, is that even belief is sort of a secondary aspect of religion. It's not, it's it's not the good. primary, it, it's not what makes something in and of itself religious. It's, it's the practice of meaning making that makes something religious. It's, it's the ordering of worlds uh, and, and finding meaning and coherence in that world that makes something religious. Since, since you know, you know, God, you know, took us there, and we, you in the, the so-called Bible Belt. Now let's give, let's let's deal with Christianity. Sure. Uh, <clears throat> the, the history of Christianity, mm -hmm. the viewpoints in this country that we deal deal with, from the King James Bible to the King James Version, how it came about, the historical part of it, the historical significance of it. How did Christianity come about? Well, that's a, that's a big question, how Christianity came about, uh, because from my perspective, Christianity is a plural. Um, there are Christianities. When you say Christianity, there is no one thing in the world that actually corresponds to the category Christian or Christianity. There are multiple diverse practices that people claim uh, as Christianity, multiple communities. And so it's, it's a difficult question because there's no one thing that corresponds to okay, it. Now, okay, now, that's, so, no matter you say a Baptist, Catholic, Jehovah Witness, Muslim, I mean, uh, 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 maybe Mormon, Mormons, and, and so on. On and on. So those are plurals. Those are other. They're, they're all plurals, but even among people who claim to be Christian in America, who understand themselves to be Protestant rather than Catholic, right. it's a multiplicity even there. Well, I, I learned this quite a few years ago because I was doing some research, and I did not even realize this, right? If you, are, if you, are, if you call yourself a Christian and you're not a Catholic, you all are Protestants. Sure. Because Protestant is those who protest against sure. the Catholic Church. Sure. I, I think there are other ways of being Christian that are, in fact, several, 
other than Protestant and Catholic. I mean, you have Orthodox churches, which are neither Protestant nor Catholic, but then you have all kinds of other traditions too that claim to be Christian, that locate how they understand themselves to be Christian, often in Christian histories and, and debates and difference. So there may have been a debate, you know, 1500 years ago, right? Some people went left, some people went right. One may be considered because of who held the power, Christianity in the, in the proper sense, right? One might be uh, considered an aberration by those who hold power, and yet they still locate their history within these, these important and significant Christian debates. While these forms of Christianity are, are the dominant religious expressions in America, it's not something that I've given a lot of attention to in my work because I'm interested in other ways of, of being religious, <laughs> yeah, right? Gonna, Everybody does that. Yeah, you know, now the, 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 the Christian scholars, all right? So, I mean, they can't, an average preacher or minister can't really come sit in dialogue with you because you're not quoting those scriptures. You're dealing with historical. Not, not at all. And, and, and I'm much more interested in, in theory and method. How do we get at these important questions? That is, what makes someone or something religious, right? And so I'm much more interested in theory and method rather than a truth claim, which is true and which is not. That, that's a never ending discussion. It's, it's not even interesting to me, right? So I'm interested in how people make those distinctions and what they do with respect to others who are making truth claims that counter their claims. No. But beyond that, I'm, I'm not even interested in, in those kind of questions and conversations. <laughs> It's what, it's what I do. But that's kind of cold, man. <laughs> so if a preacher comes, I can I get 10 preachers come sit down and talk to you. That won't do you any good. It, it probably wouldn't do me much good. It probably wouldn't do them much good either because they, they might not be interested because in, in you, what you I'm go, saying. You're going to start breaking down their, their theory and philosophical perspective. If, if we're talking about what makes something religious, right? Because religious, like you say, is just a, basic, a continuous practice of something. Sh something that helps us to make the world meaningful. Right. That that's, make it so meaningful. that's right. So, so these issues of scripture, institutions, gods, those are secondary and tertiary developments of what I want to understand as essentially religious, right? Those are things that, that aren't in and of themselves what makes something religious. They grow out of a desire to make the world meaningful. And so we develop these institutions and practices and scriptures and rituals and so on. Now, now, are you familiar with the Council of Nicaea? Somewhat, yeah. What, what happened at that time? Well, I'm not, a, I'm not a historian, but I do know that that was one of the important debates about uh, basically the nature of Jesus um, and whether Jesus was the same substance of God or a different substance. And of course, there are, are traditions that Protestants may not consider Christian, and this, this actually supports the point I made earlier, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, which locate their tradition on the other side of that debate, right? And so the debate was about whether Jesus was God or some other substance. They were on the other side that Jesus was some other substance, right? And so there are other traditions, but Jehovah's Witnesses actually trace their, their lineage to that other side of the debate. Yeah, well, someone say, well, is he God, the son of God? Or Correct. And also, what part Mary gonna play? Co correct, correct. Which, which is why uh, Catholics are actually uh, quite significant 
where that's concerned. Uh, again, this isn't the work that I do, but I'm not sure that the Protestants have, have given Mary the, the, the appropriate place uh, as the mother of Jesus, um, um, the, the sort of regard that she, that she probably demands. Hmm. Okay, so that's what the Catholic Church. Correct. And, and, do, and, and they got it from the, what they call it, the God, uh, well, and that's you know, and that's that's a, that's an important conversation too, because you know the the you know we like to think that our traditions are exclusive, um, and by we I mean Americans that they don't have genealogies and histories, and that they didn't borrow from other cultures and trends, and uh, I think what you're inferring is that many of these Christian traditions has their have their roots in in much older traditions in Africa and the Near East, in particular in Egypt, and, and I have no doubt about that. Yeah. Matter of fact, the, the, no matter which Torah, the Quran, the Bible, no matter which one you read, they all take place in the same place, North yeah. Africa. Yeah, yeah. So and it's interesting. I, I agree, and for this conversation, you, you probably need to be talking to my good friend Marcus Red. Marcus Red is a really great scholar, but he studies Egypt inside and out. You give Marcus Red a call. I'll, 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 get, I'll give. I'll, I've talked to Marcus all the time. That's right. That's right. He would love that conversation, and he's going to make the point that you make. He's going to suggest that that much that we find in religions of the world and in culture actually can be traced back to back to Egypt. I mean, but that's the whole Bible and Torah, Quran, sure. and Torah talk about it. Sure. All, you know, all the so-called great men of the Bible all had the same start, sure. the same place. So we ain't gonna get into that. We gonna move on. Okay, to, all right. To, to where to where you are now. All right. I just want to get a little Christ, Christianity foundation. That's fine. That's you know, fine. In we place. Can, yeah. In, like I said, in and out of this world. That's right. That's right. So we're gonna move on to your book because I want to. Okay, I, I understand. I want to make sure the audience understand that your writing and your perspective of this. In and out of the, in and in and out of this world, view of the nation of Islam and its embodiment. Embodiments. Mm -hmm. How did you? How did your focus? You're not a Muslim. You 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 you're not a uh, practicing. You're not part of the nation of Islam, but your focus is. The nation of Islam is starts from the from Master sure. Fraud Muhammad to mm -hmm. Elijah Muhammad to, mm -hmm. to, to present day Farrakhan. The book does a great job. Thank you. It's one of the best ones I've read that give me a complete picture. Thank you. Of the nation of Islam. Sure. But let me say first. Huh? Sure. Islam is also one of those religions that came from the north too, right? Yes. But but I also want to be clear that I'm interested not so much broad questions about Islam, but specific questions about the nation of Islam and how they take various traditions, including Islam, to fashion their own unique American All right. religion. All right. And okay, now you give us a diff difference between Sunni, Sunni, how you say it? Sunni Islam, Sunni, Sunni Islam and, and the nation of Islam. What's the difference? Well, again, I'm interested in the nation of Islam and 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 how they understood Islam in their own unique situation and circumstance. And so one of the things that we find in various forms of African-American Islam, which uh, the Nation of Islam is a part, is this tension between the universal and the particular. And so while they identify with Muslims worldwide 
and I have no doubt that they are Muslims, there's also this particularity of being African-American over against an overdetermined and overwhelming history of white racial terror and anti-black violence with which they had to contend, which, which we all have to contend okay. and make sense of who we are in this world over against that history, a history that said that black people were inferior, uh, a history which commodified black bodies through slavery and um, sharecropping, like my relatives were, uh, and sports and entertainment and, and so on, and continue to commodify these black bodies in prison industrial complex and so forth. And so the, the question for me then is, what does an African-American Islam look like in such a concept, uh, in such a context? And that brings us to the Nation of Islam because they're trying to make sense out of that. They're trying to hold in tension this universal and this particular. And so for them, uh, this, this universal sense of Islam would be inadequate for African-Americans because African-Americans have a particular history and um, social and historical reality uh, to which religion has to speak. And that's where we get the rise of the Nation of Islam in, in 1930. Let's give us a little backstory and your study and your research, because I can, you know, I can, you, you cite a, a lot of other authors who've written a lot of different things. Let's set up, like, who was Master Fraud Muhammad? How did he come about? How did he and Elijah even come to make the connection? Well, let me answer the, the, the first um, matter you alluded to, and that was um, the, the fact that I cited a lot of other scholars. You know, when you, when you write a book or an article, one of the expectations is that you engage prior scholarship, previous scholarship. The second and, and uh, more important expectation is that you're gonna say something new. And that's what I endeavored to do with this particular book, is to give us a perspective of the, of the Nation of Islam that you won't find in any other book, uh, which in fact calls into question all previous scholarship on the Nation of Islam. I think part of what I'm saying is so different that it calls us, it will, it, I hope that it causes us to reassess previous understandings and scholarship on the Nation of Islam. So to your other question, the identity of Master Fard Muhammad actually is a complicated issue. Master Fard Muhammad showed up in Detroit, uh, in inner city Detroit in 1930, claiming to have the, the truth of who black people were in North America. He looked uh, like a white man. Well, yes, 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 in um, an area, uh, area of Detroit called Paradise Valley. And, uh, and that was around uh, 1930. And so he gained a following going door to door, selling silks and doing magic tricks. And again, claiming uh, that he understood the true nature of black people. They weren't Negroes. They weren't colored. They certainly weren't nigger, uh, niggers. They were... The, the lost and found people who were really special, right? And think about how that might be important to a people who had been enslaved, who the world says is inferior, who have basically few rights to their own bodies uh, over against a history of slavery and lynching, right? In America, you know, white people had almost all the power. White people could kill you, could kill your wife, your children, could sell your family away. You couldn't do anything about it. Right? And this was codified 
in the law that black people had no rights that white people were even bound to respect. And so think about how if you were alive during that time, you may have heard that, that you weren't just a slave or, or the product of, of, of slavery, that your, that your body, that who you were was, was trillions of years old, were special. In fact, you were chosen, right? That there was something unique about you. Think about against that history, especially against lynching, right? Which we would have had in, 19, in 1930 all across the country, especially in the South, but also in the North, in places like Illinois and Nebraska and, and, and so forth. And how someone who came to your door saying, you're beautiful, you're special, you're not colored, you're not a Negro, you're not a nigger, you're not inferior. Plus the person looked like the, the other folks who Well, that's, that, that's right, even though he claimed to be a part of your community, right? Um, uh, and so to deal with your question more specifically, um, we only have a few pictures of Master Fard Muhammad, and he does look like a white man. The Nation of Islam has dealt with that by saying that Master Fard Muhammad was half black and half white. And so they mythologize his physiognomy um, um, by saying that his appearance was necessary for him to, to travel and move among white people so that they would not detect his blackness, which means that he was able to hear conversations and gather intelligence that maybe you or I wouldn't be able to gather and share this insight with black people. And so they frame this then as a unique social position that allowed him to understand white people uniquely in a way that we wouldn't be able to because he looked uh, um, to some people uh, like he was white. But in terms of his background, that's still sort of ambiguous. We're not real clear where Mastafar Muhammad originated. And there are a lot of stories about where he came from and who he might, might have been. I think your book, you said possibly Pakistan. There, there are some scholars who argued that he might have been Pakistani. Um, uh, there are FBI records that claim that he was someone else, <laughs> um, a hustler, and but, so on. But the FBI records pretty accurate. Now. Well, I mean, if you trust the FBI <laughs> records, I'm not sure I do. Um, so, so it's not real clear. I mean, there are different perspectives of who he was. And what I'm interested in is was what the Nation of Islam does with that. And I argue that they mythologize uh, that ambiguity of his genealogy and identity, and they use it to their advantage, again, to say, that he looked the way he did so that he can hold a special place in this world and, and move among white people in, in a way stealthily so that he can come to understand their private conversations, how they understood black people, how they moved through the world, how they understood it, and share that insight with, with black people. And that's how they come to understand it. But also that he was half white and half black, that his father was black and his mother was white. That's what the Nation of Islam contends. But none of that has been proven. They're just, just all theory. Well, I'm not sure that it's proven to the, the satisfaction of a, of a historian, but, but these are the debates about, about uh, Master Farad Muhammad's identity. Now, how did Master Farad and Elijah Muhammad came to meet? Because uh, I didn't even know this, but I remember as I, as I read in your book that Elijah Muhammad spent time in prison. Yes, but this was after that. It was after that. Yeah, in, in 19, roughly around 1942, 
uh, Elijah Muhammad went to jail, I, I believe for, for so-called draft evasion. Mm -hmm. uh, the Nation of Islam were pacifists. They didn't register for the draft. They didn't believe in war. And so he was arrested for that in 1942, and I believe spent about four years from 1942 to 1946 in prison. But where, prior, where was he prison, in Chicago? I, I don't remember the exact uh, uh, penal uh, colony that he would have been a part of at the time. Uh, it probably was in Illinois. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He met Master Fraud in the, in the early 30s. He did, but his, but his wife, if I remember correctly, was, had actually gone to Master Farad Muhammad's right, yes. religious meetings prior to, to him and encouraged him to go to the meetings. And it was there that he met um, uh, Master Farad Muhammad after, after attending his meetings uh, for, for quite some time. Now, yes? Now give us a little backstory about Elijah Muhammad because he came from out yeah. of the deep south. Yeah. Elijah Muhammad was from Georgia. Uh, and I believe he was born October 19, uh, 1897, and, somewhere like that. And what was his name at the time? His name was Elijah Poole. Elijah Poole. And he was born in Cordell, Georgia, right around the turn of the century, at the time where America experienced the most lynchings of probably any other time in history. I mean, there were just dozens and dozens and dozens of lynching in Georgia alone. And so this was really formative for Elijah Muhammad, whose friend uh, was also, when he was a child, was also lynched. Uh, I believe his friend was named Howard. And all of these have profound effects on Elijah Muhammad and were also traumatic, as you would expect. And uh, one of the practices of lynching, white people would, would kill somebody, and then they would take the body and put the body in the center of the black community as a sign of what happens if you get out of place, a sign of what happens if you don't assent to the norms of white supremacist social arrangements. So, so you're talking about calculating trauma. Correct. No, it was, there was clearly a, a technology yeah. to, to terror and torture um, that uh, white people engaged in in the United States and the Caribbean. I mean, they perfected Torture, and this is part of the background that I need people to get when they're trying to understand the Nation of Islam and other black religious groups. You can't understand them and what they're trying to do without understanding this background, the social historical reality of, of this violent white racial terror that was everywhere for black people, that, that was difficult to transcend, right? But it's, it's 2023, and that type of terror still exists. Well, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, it, it, I'm not sure it goes away. It, it just morphs. It, it, it takes different forms uh, in terms of police brutality and, and an inequitable justice system that, that over-incarcerates, over-prosecutes, over-polices black communities um, more than others for, for, the, for similar crimes or similar uh, um, behavior. And so terror, again, is a technology that's really, really tricky, uh, which is what the Nation of Islam called it, by the way. They called it a science. They understood it, the science of technology, right? right. right? Uh, the devil and his lies, right, uh, is what Elijah Muhammad, uh, uh, would, how he would talk about it at times. And it is a, it is a tricky system. It's a, it's a system that even today 
if it's criticized, will make you the problem, right? right? Or make me the problem. If I'm talking about racism, if I'm talking about white supremacy, white racial terror, if I'm talking about anti-black violence that is structural, that continues to be in the Constitution, in health disparities, in policing, in the prison industrial complex, then, then the system reacts to that by making you the problem or me the problem. And it's, it's a way of, of, of kind of maintaining the system no, and no, keeping us in place. No different than what you just described at one time, they used to get hang you, kill you. It's a you. legacy of slavery. So, so it's the most sophisticated form. And, and, and lynchings. It's, it's what historian Saidia Hartman calls the afterlife of slavery. We can't understand the current social arrangements, my term, without understanding slavery and what came after that. After slavery uh, was uh, so-called abolished, because we know there were vestiges of slavery for decades after the Emancipation of Proclamation, January 1st, 1863. There were people who didn't leave plantations until you know, decades after that. But then there were other systems, such as sharecropping, that, that took its place, and practices of lynching that took its place. And so we're talking about a really sophisticated system that changes in order to maintain control over resources. Um, uh, and, and remain centered in American life, right? And I'm talking here about, about, about whiteness or what some people might call white supremacy. It morphs, right? According to um, uh, the current practices and circumstances such that whiteness continues to, to dominate and to garner the majority of the, of the, the benefits, uh, material benefits. Uh, and social and psychological ones uh, that are available. And so it's a really complicated kind of system. And like you suggest, you can't understand it without understanding slavery and how it, it's just a continuation of these kind of uh, violent white racial terroristic practices. That, that's, that's why the, in your book, you, all through your book, you make the, the reference to black bodies Correct. in and out of this world. Sure, right. So, so you just, to me, you just explain, explain what you meant by... Sure, but I probably should clarify that a little bit more. Please do. So one of the things that I'm arguing in the book is this history that we're talking about is part of what the Nation of Islam was responding to. That these then, that, that blackness then was associated with slavery and inferiority and lynching. All right, it wasn't that black people were this, this is that the, the, the structures, the, the laws, the discourses such as philosophy and so on, said that black bodies were inferior, right? And treated them in such a way that maintained them at the bottom of the social arrangements and sort of a hierarchical arrangement. When immigrants come here, for example, they're socialized into this hierarchical arrangement that maintains blackness at the bottom. And one of the ways that they're able to gain social mobility is by continuing, for example, to maintain blackness at the bottom. You'll notice that many of them move into black communities and open businesses and stores and so on. So people are socialized into this, this social arrangement and this hierarchy, and it's on black bodies and through black bodies in black communities that they're able to, uh, to move socially upward. And so the Nation of Islam was trying to do something. They were trying to change the meaning of black bodies. And this is why uh, for Elijah Muhammad, 
black people weren't Negroes, right? This was a, this was a term that, that didn't have any dignity. They weren't colored. They were something more than that. Black bodies were ancient that, that have their origins, not just on this planet, but also in the cosmos, Ooh, right? And were trillions of years old and were related to black life on other planets such as Mars and Venus, where black people lived to be 1200 years old, were eight, nine feet tall, but, but if, you, if you listen, you hear what, what's going on. What they're trying to do is to say that black life can be robust, right? That, that black life doesn't solely have to be determined by the violence uh, and deprivation in the United States. That there are examples of black life that are trillions of years old in the cosmos of what blackness can be. And so they were trying to shift the focus and shift the discourses and practices for example, from slave food to healthier food that not just would make black bodies more robust and healthier with, with a longer lifespan, because at the time black bodies were, you know, black people didn't live very long. I mean, in slavery, you were lucky if you, if you made it to 30, and many people did not, right? Death in the 20s was really common. But they literally worked you to death. Work, work you to death, even as children, right? There was no such thing as a black childhood. And so the Nation of Islam was trying to do something about the meaning of black bodies that allowed black people to live in this world with a kind of hubris and confidence and a sense of themselves that was something different than what slavery and, and white people gave us. And, and Christianity. And Christianity. For Elijah Muhammad, Christianity was a slave religion. It was a religion that participated, I'm glad you started there because it's relevant. Christianity participated in the enslavement of black people, and he's exactly right, all right? And it participated in not just the making of the slave, but the maintenance of the slave. And this is why Elijah Muhammad hated Christianity. And for him, Negro Christians, that's what he referred to them as, were the worst because they participated in a system that continued to oppress their people, that, that kept their people slaves, if, if not in body, then at least in mind and, and likely both. And so what I mean by uh, material and extraterrestrial is that uh, on the one hand, the nation of Islam was concerned about these material bodies, these physical bodies in this world, how they lived, how they looked, right? And you'll notice how they dressed. They looked clean, they looked neat. There were suits and dresses and, and head, headwear, you know, uh, and so on. But they also, the meaning of black bodies also can't be exclusively tied to this world. It's also extraterrestrial. It's tied both to a history of, of black people in the cosmos, uh, according to Nation of Islam, but also to this idea of UFOs, uh, which symbolizes uh, what, what black bodies ultimately can be. And so if I, if I might say something very briefly about that, the most important religious idea in the nation of Islam is what they call this mother wheel. This mother wheel is this vehicle that uh, uh, Master Fard Muhammad supposedly built with Japanese scientists, who Japanese were also black, in 1929 on the Japanese islands uh, in 1929. And it's, it was, it's a, a technology uh, that really illustrates how intelligent black people are because it's, it's, it's a technology that's beyond NASA, according to Elijah Muhammad. It's the greatest technology ever built. 
NASA can't and the United States can't build anything like this mother wheel, uh, what Minister Farrakhan says we would understand as a UFO. And it's this UFO that at the end of the age is going to return for the nation of Islam and bring an end to this age of white domination. That was prophesied 2,000 years ago, and that time is pretty near. Well, I, I wouldn't say 2,000 <laughs> years ago. I would say because the, well, the, so they do tie the mother wheel to Ezekiel's vision of a wheel within a wheel in the uh, first chapter of the book of Ezekiel. So there is some sense of an ancient vision of this wheel. Okay, I, I was, I, I had a chance to read the, the ancient African mm. version called Coming Forward by Day and Night. Mm -hmm. What folks used to call the Book of the Dead. Book of the Dead. Mm -hmm. And in there, they make reference of a wheel, you know, to form man, you know, to, you know, from, you know. so the, the wheel has its starts in the ancient Africans' writings and on the walls. Well, and I study, I study more than just the Nation of Islam where this is concerned. I study broadly other African-American UFO traditions. And uh, most people know about uh, George Clinton and Bootsy Collins, right? <laughs> the Mothership right? Connection. I'm, I'm glad you laughed, the Mothership <laughs> Connection. But the Mothership Connection is rooted in what for George Clinton and Bootsy Collins was a real experience right. of, being, of, of seeing a UFO. And to your point, they tie, uh, George Clinton ties his experience of being taken into this UFO uh, to ancient African. Uh, ancient Africans and uh, the Dogons of Mali in particular, oh, and how they were interested in astronomy, right? And stargazing and so on. And so uh, what you're saying is true in the sense that many of these traditions do connect, uh, these African-American UFO traditions do connect their experiences to Africa and other ancient traditions of seeing things in the sky and, and early forms of astronomy and so on. Man, this stuff is getting too deep. All right. <laughs> well, let me know if you need me to slow down now. We can, we can unpack some stuff if we have to. Okay. I'm, I don't know, Doc. I'm about to shut my show down. <laughs> take that to a whole other level now. It's some great information. I appreciate okay. that. Now, so because of Elijah Muhammad, who was named Elijah Poole, and my, my family are Poole's. All right. I don't know if we connected. You might be related. But, uh. He ended up moving because of the violence, the terror that was going on yes. in his community. Correct. He ended up going, or say, up north. Yes. And he ended up in Chicago. He ended up in Detroit first, Detroit, I believe. Detroit, mm -hmm. Detroit. And what, what point did him and Elijah make that connection? Well, Elijah and uh, Master Fard, I think Master you meant, yeah, uh, would have made that connection uh, probably around 1930, according to... Um, uh, the narrative of the Nation of Islam. It would have been in, in 1930. So, and he, and according to the Nation of Islam, he would have been schooled or taught uh, as master and disciple by uh, Master Fard for about three, three, three and a half years. Now, three uh, years. This was always, this, this one thought have always concerned me. When I, when I was studying the Nation of Islam, mm -hmm. I've never been a Muslim, never been, but I was studying a religion. I kind of had an interest in learning. And he called himself the Nation of Islam. Yes. So how could the Nation of Islam start a nation within a nation of the United States of America sure. without getting consent and permission from those who are in charge of the United States of America? Well, that's, that's, that's a really important question because in my book, I shift 
the notion of nation and how we understand what they're doing from black nationalism uh, and, and sort of classical black nationalism or nationalism in general, which requires a nation state to a more religious understanding of, of, of the nation. And so I argue that the Nation of Islam were actually religious nationalists following the work of Dr. Tracy Hux, who's a, a now a Harvard professor, rather than black nationalists. I argue that they were never really black nationalists. I mean, even though they talked about establishing, you know, a separate uh, territory in the United States, they were always much more interested in uh, uh, building a religious community. And, and how as such, as religious people, religion could help them to think of new ways of understanding themselves, new ways of understanding the world. Uh, in the language of Tracy Hux, how this, would, this, this understanding of nation would help them to think about new uh, ontologies and metaphysics. Um, that is now. What, what do ontology? Sure. Because in your in your right, you use all these big old words. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's I, a, I it's, a it's, next to me. it's a scholarly high level book, <laughs> really and, high and that's level. and that's the that's the kind of language that we okay. have to use. But I think what Tracy Hux means by that is that it allowed uh, this notion of of na nation or being religious nationalists allowed them to understand themselves very differently, understand themselves differently from what the culture said they were. So they're, that they're no longer slaves, they're no longer Negroes, they are something else. And uh, allowed them to make a, a, a sense of their world, to understand their world very differently. So, so, so Master Fraud and Elijah helped to redefine the African experience in this country. Yes. By renewing the soul and the spirit of a people who just been and coming up with all new symbols and language and so on in service of that new understanding to, to of to the nature uplift, of the world only to uplift the people that have been beaten downtrodden that's right and, and that's so. right and so while it might have been specific to the nation of islam and their religion it was also meant to make broader understanding of who black people were in well, the united states okay. but master fraud was only here for a short period he was so, three years Maybe. So in three years, he trained the, the great... The, the According Muhammad, to the Nation of Islam, yes. Uh, who we know who, who was a being that lived in Georgia. Yes. Who you, you can trace and track his... That's right. His, 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 uh, his travel and where, where he grew up at. But Master Fraud disappeared after that. He disappeared. And that's where we get a lot of the mythology, right? Uh, where did he go? The Nation of Islam says he, he went to the mother wheel. Right, this UFO that I was talking about before. Well, it's not a UFO. Farrakhan says it's a UFO to us. We would understand it as a UFO, but to the Nation of Islam, it's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a craft that's very intimately connected to their religion, and to the nature and identity of Black people. And so, uh, Minister Farrakhan says that this is where both Master Fard Muhammad is, and where Elijah Muhammad went when he died in 1975. He didn't die in the way we understood it. He departed, he departed. in their language mm -hmm. to the mother wheel. Similar to what the Christianities and the Jews say, you know, with, with Jesus. He, I mean, he I mean, sh sure, he, he ascended, he ascended right. into heaven. He, and and, and we're we going to say the, the mother wheel. The mother wheel. And this is, of course, where, where Minister Farrakhan says he's going as well, right? When he departs, he's not going to die 
in the way we understand, according to Minister Farquhar. And this is what I talk about in the postscript to my book. He's going to join Master Farad Muhammad and Elijah Muhammad in the mother wheel and um, hopes to return just like Jesus right. as the Messiah at some point in the future. Right, now, so let's get back to the Master Fraud. So Master Fraud, after three years of teaching, preparing, first Elijah got to hear Master Fraud because of his wife. Yes, I think, so, I think she's the one who encouraged him to, to go to the meetings. So he started going to the meetings and from there, he, you know, because of his background, his experience, he was prop for prime for that thing. Just like a lot of other yeah, black people yeah, were. Like, like, right? like the Malcolm X and That's right. It makes perfect, yeah, perfect sense to them. Right, okay. Mm -hmm. Now, how did this training come about? And, and then, what, you know, how did he get a chance to put that much into one man before he departed? That he took over and created his own, not his own, but he took it, for, took it to another level once Master, Master Fraud departed from him. Well, with this imparting of what was initially secret knowledge uh, had to happen in secret relationship um, between a master and a disciple, which means that there had to be a really intimate relationship between Master Fard Muhammad and Elijah Muhammad, but also those who would also be disciples of uh, Master Fard and later Elijah Muhammad. Because you know, there's no internet. We're not talking about this stuff being in books. We're not talking about this being written down. The only way you would learn this was from master to disciple. And so you had to be there in relationship to gain the secrets of the universe. And this is how it's framed, how the planets were formed, the origin of the races, um, uh, where white people came from, why they're so violent. These were all the secrets that were apparently and supposedly imparted from Master Fard Muhammad to Elijah Muhammad, who then imparted this to the nation of Islam uh, through various means. When, uh, when Elijah, after the departure of Master Fraud, Elijah took over and he elevated the nation of Islam to a whole next another level, then comes the great Malcolm X, who, who's a would you call that a little pimp? Or a little, uh, well, I mean, you call him in the community. Yeah, you, end up, you go to prison. Who, who got a new revelation? Why in prison? Yeah, yeah. Okay. He he did have a uh, Malcolm X did have a. Uh, well, his brother first told him about the nationalism. His brother, I think it was I think it was Reginald. I could be mistaken, but I think it was his brother Reginald who had joined the Nation of Islam first, and it was actually through him who he learned about the Nation of Islam and Elijah Muhammad. And it was right around 1952 uh, that I think um, uh, Malcolm commits to the nation of Islam. And while he's in prison, yes, he claims to have had a vision of uh, what some would say was Master Fard Muhammad, right? Uh, this religious experience of, of seeing him. Now, when Malcolm is released from prison, he shows up at, in, in, in Chicago, New York. Um, I, I want to say you're, you're probably right that it was New York, um, but he would have had to have close relationship with Chicago because at the time, you know, temple, the first temple was started in Detroit, but at the time the Nation of Islam had shifted their headquarters to Chicago, okay. right, um, which, which they call Mosque Miriam, Miriam okay. right, to this day. 
And now, so, but Malcolm showed up on the scene and he's a true warrior. But, but so I want to say something about that too, okay. right? Because the first thing you said was that he was a hustler. I think you said a pimp. Right. I also want to say that, that I also want to call into question the autobiography of, the, of, the Malcolm, of Malcolm X. Oh. And even as a graduate student, before I had read a lot of scholarship on the nation of Islam, I remember being in a class on uh, Malcolm and Martin with Dr. Anthony Penn, who became my advisor, uh, one of my two advisors at Rice University. My other advisor was Elias Bamba. So I went to an elite private school in the South, and I had two black uh, full professors, senior scholars, as advisors. Uh, I, I want to say that. That's really significant. Very much so. But I had this class on Malcolm and Martin uh, in religion with uh, um, Dr. Anthony Penn, and I was required to present on the autobiography of, of Malcolm X. You know, we all had to choose works to present on, and that was mine. And one of the things I claimed that when I read this book closely, there's no way this stuff could be accurate. And, and there were also undergraduates in the class that were like, there's no way it, it, you know, this isn't accurate. And one of the things that I remember Dr. Penn saying was, yeah, there's scholarship that call much of this into question. But I saw that just from reading it. Um, so, so it's a really tenuous source. What about the, the book, the autobiography of Malcolm it's, it's, that you requested? I, almost all of it. Almost all of it. I mean, I, I, I say sort of sarcastically that it's a great work of fiction. It's a great work of literature. It, it, it overemphasized the, the, the dysfunctional or criminal aspects of Malcolm in order to emphasize the redemptive value of, the, of Elijah Muhammad and America. It was, it was crafted in many ways by Alex Haley to be a great redemption story, which meant that it's a better story if, if you emphasize, uh, embellish how low and criminal Malcolm was. And, and that's why it's, it's, it's suspect as a source. Uh, and is much better understood uh, from my perspective as a work of literature that was really crafted largely by Alex Haley, uh, who was a conservative as well, uh, to fit a certain narrative about redemption. Uh, there were missing chapters um, that, that didn't make it. Um, There's data that got edited out um, such that it was able to serve this sort of narrative uh, of, of redemption. Just like making a movie. Well, and this is this is what Manning Marble used to used to argue, that um, you know Malcolm became legend, and so we lost a lot of the historical social accuracy. Uh, that his life is much more complicated and even messy than what we get from the autobiography, and um, and some scholars have 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 tried to uncover that and reveal that, saying suggesting that there's more value in the Malcolm who was much more human, right? Like you and me. I can feel what you're saying mm -hmm. now, because what makes a great book? That's exactly right. You gotta be able to pull your audience in from the first page to the last. And what makes a great legend and hero, yeah, you know, right? Is this person who was bigger than life. But yeah, they start at the bottom. That's right. And they rise to the... That's, a, that's exactly right. But Malcolm was much more complicated than that and was much more like, like you and me. Than, than the legend. At the same time, when seen against some of the complexity of his life, I actually appreciate him more. 
I mean, this guy had great struggles, both in his family life, in the nation of Islam, in his personal life, and yet he still became this, this great man who basically gave his life for freedom and justice. I mean, we don't need the autobiography to craft this story for us. Seen against his life, he becomes even, even bigger and more significant and more like us to me. He spoke from the heart. He, he spoke from the heart. He spoke truth to power. Living a life that was actually really complicated, matter where he wasn't perfect either. Matter of fact, uh, him and Elijah always at, was at, at odds because Elijah was like, I guess in your book you said, God gonna fix it. But Malcolm said, yeah. he only gonna fix it, we got here and do something about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, Malcolm really wanted the nation of Islam to, to be engaged in the civil rights movement uh, and the movement for black freedom. And Elijah Muhammad didn't want that. Why? Because he was a religious leader. He was preparing religious people. And at the end of the age, the mother wheel, the mother plane was going to come back and fix all of that. We don't need to be marching and, and, and engaged in all of this. The mother wheel is going to take care of that. But that's not Malcolm. That's, that's not Malcolm. Malcolm was like, we, we so, can't wait. So they were, they, they, that, can, that caused tension. That was that was part, of, was the part of the tension. That was part of the tension. There were other aspects that were much more personal, but that was that was part of the tension. Okay, but uh, I mean, the personal one is back what he saw or heard about his about his leader. Yes, um, and also his own personal relationships um, that were that were compromised in that. Um, uh, who Malcolm loved, um, the relationship of of who he actually loved. Uh, to Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam. So it was much more personal, much more acrimonious. The political and theological, like we're talking about, um, Elijah Muhammad not wanting the Nation of Islam being engaged in the civil rights movement and so on, a black consciousness movement and all of that. For a while they couldn't vote. Uh, they couldn't wear African clothes, African hairstyles and so on. That was a big part of it. But there was also a much more personal aspect uh, as well. Now, and although Elijah fought against taking side of the civil rights movement, but with you, you, in your book you say that most of the writing formulates or fits the Nation of Islam into more of a political organization. Well, actually, I actually, actually argue, that's right. I actually argue the opposite, that, yeah. that much of the scholarship has done disservice to the Nation of Islam because it wants to fit them into political models. Uh, such as a group that was trying to establish a nation state. I, I think that's a mistake. I'm saying it's much healthier and much more fruitful to understand them as a religious organization, which they were. Then we can make sense of this UFO stuff and life on other planets. That doesn't fit into a black nationalist model, okay. right? Right. right? This is about people who are trying to re-envision their own origins, right? As in the cosmos, not in slavery and the slave trade, but somewhere out there, they were trying to re-envision who they were and the origins of, and to make sense of their world and the gratuitous violence of, of white people um, uh, and their ability to, uh, without punishment, uh, unfettered, kill black people, right? Rape black people, men and women, and so on. And so it makes much more sense to me and it's much more fruitful and accurate to understand them in the religious sense rather than a political organization, even though all, all religious groups have some political implications, 
right? But I don't prioritize the political in the way that previous and, and early scholarship did. And I think that's a mistake, and I think that's how we've come to misunderstand the Nation of Islam, in fact. Because the, there are those who, who want to reset the stage for the Nation of Islam and fit them into that category. That's right. That they are they're not a religious group. That's they're right. Just concerned about you know uh, fighting against the white man. That's right. Against the so-called Jews. Right. But for them, that's religious, mm -hmm. right? Fighting for justice is part of what we do to, to fight for black people's humanity and dignity. That's part of their religious vision for the world. How are you going to fight for, for freedom and for a vision of black humanity and ignore their material condition, right? Which is what a lot of Christian groups did, right? Uh, an idea that's called quietism. We won't get involved in all this. We don't care about racism and politics. We'll just, we'll just prepare ourselves for heaven, right? This other stuff is irrelevant. God will deliver you. In the end, we'll get our reward in heaven. That's what he keeps telling you. While people here die and are lynched, while children are killed, while uh, men and women are raped, while people are incarcerated unjustly, while black men die at a rate that's even greater in terms of their life expectancy than any other demographic the Native Americans. Oh, we'll, we'll get our reward in heaven. I subscribe to the theory that, you know, first of all, I, I truly believe when, they, when other folks came to this, this, so, this country, what they call the United States, mm -hmm. that they found us here. Yeah. <laughs> we just did, did it. Ain't no way you, you took all the people from Africa and brought them here, right? That's, in just common sense, tell me that. Yep. Ain't no way you moved all these people here. And you didn't go to Africa to get no dumb, ignorant people. You, when you went there, you saw these people had built civilization, they had built these kingdoms, empires. So you wanted them to build the same thing for you. Yes. So you went and got these people to do what they'd done for themselves to do for you. But to do that, you got to first make them, you, you got to make them, you got to make the other, other, other world see that. They, have, they don't have any value, they're not worth anything. Sure. Oh, I forgot that, I forgot how you got sure. there. You and I'm not what, sure what language in the book I used to describe that, but, but partly what, I'm, partly what I, I think I was trying to demonstrate is the, the racial logics exactly uh, right. of, the, of the slave trade and anti-black violence that gave rise to groups like the Nation of Islam. This, this, um, these multiple practices, institutional structural practices that rendered black bodies and black people inferior as having no intellect, no interior life, no history, no culture, and so on, other than what white people gave them um, in slavery. But for us good white people, y'all wouldn't have nothing. Right, right, and I, and I was trying to paint the picture of that in order to help people understand groups like the Nation of Islam, that you can't view them in isolation right now. You have to look at them and make sense of them over against the, the, the racial logics of white supremacy. And only then can you make sense of what they're doing and, and what they're saying. And so I think part of what you're, you're trying to point to is the fact that white, black people had history um, all over the world, a uh, history of, of what some call civilization, that's, that's actually a troublesome term, but civilization and travel uh, all over the world prior to the slave trade. And I think that's partly what you're, what you're trying to get at, that there were probably even black people in North America mm -hmm. uh, subsequent to 
the slave trade, and I think that's probably accurate. That's probably accurate. That's, pr that's probably yeah. accurate. Professor says probably accurate. Right. I will take your word. For right. It. Right. <laughs> Elijah Muhammad, who became this great leader. <clears throat> now, at the time, he was, as he was aging, he was preparing his son. Mm -hmm. Wad Wad how you say Wadim? Oh, at the time, he was called Wallace. Wallace. Muhammad. In the book, I used the Muslim name that he chose, Wadim Muhammad. So. But you know, Elijah get preparing him. Also, you got the, the, the great Malcolm X on deck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's a complicated situation. It's very complicated. But you make mention that the federal government had a hand in Wadim or Brother Wallace. Uh, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. Um, I think they did have some contact. Uh, with Wardi Muhammad, uh, I can't remember exactly uh, what part of the book and wh what you're referring, but I do know that um, Malcolm X, uh, f looking from the outside in, was the likely successor to uh, Elijah Muhammad. I think that's partly where, where you're trying to go. As the minister of Temple Number no. 7 in Harlem and uh, the national spokesperson for the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, he was the logical uh, one to be the leader of the Nation of Islam after. In fact, in the Nation of Islam, they used to call him the number two man, uh, which is a term that Malcolm X didn't like. And uh, so Malcolm and Wallace, who I believe was Elijah Muhammad's seventh son or seventh child, uh, were actually quite close and they would talk quite a bit. So after Malcolm died uh, on the same day I was born, uh, two years later, February 21st, uh, 1965, uh, you know, later, like you said, we see the ascendancy of Wallace, who had left the Nation of Islam many times, who had actually been put out of the Nation of Islam for, for, for calling into question the teachings of Elijah Muhammad yeah. as not true Islam, correct. And um, he, he came back several times. And after his father died in 1975, then um, the question was who would lead the Nation of Islam? And like you're pointing out, he determined that he would lead the Nation of Islam and actually threatened and outmaneuvered in some ways Minister Farrakhan, who was himself the minister of Temple Number no. 7 and the, the national representative of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, who from the outside looking in seemed like he should have been, been the guy. It didn't work out that way. Wallace took over and quickly moved the nation of Islam away from the historic teachings and more toward a form of, of global or Sunni Islam. Yeah, which you call that term, which they renamed it, World Community of Islam. World Community of Islam was the first name. They went through some, uh, you know, other iterations from the World Community of Islam in the West to the American Muslim Mission, and and so on. And he ex excommunicated Farrakhan. Well, yeah, Farrakhan says he feels like he got put okay, out. Okay, he okay, feels okay. like he got put out, but he also decided around 1977 or so that. Um, he wanted to reinstitute the true teachings of Elijah Muhammad. No, but at that time, Malcolm had already been killed. Malcolm was, had killed uh, 12 years earlier. Right. And so, so, so now Malcolm is no longer in the picture. Who would have been the great leader? Uh, there's a lot of theories sure, about sure. who killed Malcolm. Sure. What is yours? I don't know that I, that I have a theory. I can only say that it was complicated and it was probably... Um, a mixture, cabal call it, um, that included uh, NYPD, 
uh, and their intelligence unit, which was called BOSS, B-O-S-S, I forget it was an acronym for something, uh, the FBI, CIA, uh, and the Nation of Islam at the time. So everybody wore everybody the Greek Baptist. Especially Greek. members of the Newark Mosque. Uh, and so it was probably a mix of, of all of that and all of them. Now, now, the story has it, once Malcolm started traveling outside of the U.S., he had different experiences. Yes. And those experiences reshaped his thoughts. His, yes and his no. His views of, the, of, of Islam, the world, and people. What is your perspective of all these? My perspective of that is that uh, those accounts, again, are exaggerated. Um, uh, you know, we, we tend to think that because of that, Malcolm no longer saw race as significant. And that's just not true. Mm -hmm. I argue in my book that when you look at what Malcolm did after the Hajj, after he goes to, to Mecca, you still can't understand what he's doing without connecting him to Elijah Muhammad, even though he's no longer a part of the Nation of Islam. And his close friend, uh, Albert Cleage, argues the same thing. Uh, in an essay, I think it's called Myths or something about Malcolm X, he argues that race was still very important to Elijah Muhammad. And, even, and, and Elijah, uh, Malcolm X is even critical of Islam uh, for its racism, right? And so, you know, it, it's greatly exaggerated that uh, Malcolm saw the world as raceless. What I think we do get from Malcolm is a Malcolm who was more sophisticated, who was much more international in scope, who understood the role and place of women in black radical politics, which is why women were always in leadership of the organization he started, the Organization for Afro-American Unity. And so we see a much more sophisticated Malcolm, but who still regarded race as, and racism as one of the primary problems that black people had to overcome. And again, the source of these, these myths the way we understand Malcolm X, remember, come from the autobiography, which for me is a suspect source, always. Okay. At one time, Malcolm and Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King did not see eye to eye. Matter of fact, Malcolm, you can hear him in his speeches make derogatory comments about Dr. King. Yeah, yeah. But down the road, the two happened to come together. Sure. And you, what's, what you know about that? What, what happened after, well, I think after that? There are, a lot of, there are a lot of books and essays about this, but I think the best book is by James Cone, um, the father of black theology. He wrote a book, I believe it was published in 1990, we'll, we'll have to verify that, called Malcolm and Martin in America, Dream or Nightmare. To me, that's the best book on the subject. Dream or Nightmare. Dream or Nightmare, <laughs> because it maps and tracks the movement of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King toward one another in a way that no other text does. But there are also some really brilliant essays on the subject. James Baldwin wrote what I think is one of his best essays called Malcolm and Martin, where he basically argued the same thing. He was friends with both of them, where he argued that at the end of their lives that there wasn't much difference between them. And I actually wrote an article uh, on this that tries to pull all of this scholarship together uh, uh, in a collection of essays on Malcolm's friend, uh, uh, Reverend Albert Cleage, who started the Shrine of the Black Madonna and Child in Atlanta and Detroit and Houston. And so, yes, they did move toward one another, but the criticism was also two ways. I mean, I mean, 
Martin Luther King Jr. would also criticize Malcolm and the Nation of Islam too, based on the scholarship that he had at the day, which, which I updated. So he was, you know, he was going based on what he had, which would have been C. Eric Lincoln's Black Muslims in America, uh, which was published, I want to say, in 1961. And also uh, E.U. Isin Udom, who was um, a Nigerian scholar who studied at the Nation of Islam, who published his book, Black Nationalism, in 1962. Those would have been the only sources that Martin Luther King had in the 60s. And both of them understood the Nation of Islam in ways that are very different from what I'm arguing here. They would have seen as the Nation of Islam as political as a political movement. At the time, you got you got your viewpoints from the, the, the large media. That's correct. Who was not supportive? That's of, correct. And the scholarship that was available that, at the time, which was limited. Right now, uh, as I have grown, I got friends. They argue the point that did we choose Martin? Yeah. Or yeah. did the system choose Martin over Malcolm? Yes. Because yes. Malcolm said, "Great gang said, let's embrace all turn the other cheek." Yeah. Malcolm said, "We will be non-violent to those who non-violent with us. Sure. We will be violent to those who are violent with us." Yeah. So did we choose Martin over Malcolm, or did we have a, or did the Islam was like, did we choose Obama for president, or some? I'm going to start my answer to probably every question <laughs> you you ask me by saying it's complicated, <laughs> because it is. Because you know, we have to be aware and self-aware of the stereotypes on both sides, right? That, Mal that Martin Luther King didn't have a radical side or a radical edge, that he didn't believe in self-defense, which he did, right? That Malcolm was violent, which he was not, that he called for violence, which was a stereotype. And so you know, the, the, there were stereotypes on both of them, which sort of structured how we understood both men, and there was also discourses and narratives from the government, from white people, which privileged King as the more acceptable, but which also had to sanitize him to make that possible. And so the radical things that King said about, about white people, about whiteness, about America as a system of internal colonies, uh, about how America was doomed to destruction if she didn't turn from her wicked ways. We don't hear about that. that that's Martin, not Malcolm, uh -huh. right? And so, so our choices are often structured by institutions that in some ways help to, to control how we think about even our, our own communities and leaders and ourselves. And we have to be self-aware that these forces were at work trying to make us choose one over the other when no other community just chooses one person, right? There are multiple people, multiple ways of looking at the same problems that work in concert with one another. And this is why I think Malcolm and Martin, as they corrected and critiqued one another, as James Cone says in, in his book, move closer to one another. Now, I would have to say this like this here, because you know, the, more, the more I learn about the system we live in, we call America the system, the only one I know is that it is run and dictated on a military system, military yeah. system, right? Yeah. And we know one one thing the military does best, and that is propaganda. Military and policing. I mean, I would I would put those Police, two together. Yeah, policing, and the thing they deal with is propaganda. Yeah. They create 
whatever they need to do correct to, to overturn other that, that serves other their countries that serves their purposes so That's you right. know of a people in a country yeah who have little no insight or information and somebody got somebody else got delivered to you yeah they're not going to deliver you something that's going to be helpful. That's right. And that's what the most information that they have given us have not served us at all, well at all. That's right. But now through technology, social media, we can get out the information, but you still got to fight against the other information that's coming behind But this you. is why we have to be self-aware of how these systems operate and even our own prejudices, how we might see other black people based on what we want in the world. Not everybody wants to overturn systems of oppression, even if they're black. They want to find their comfortable place in it. And remember, when, when Martin Luther King died, he wasn't popular in black communities. That's a mythology. That's a later oh, he rendition. No, he was not popular at all in black communities. Yeah, because people say call him an agitator. He was a troublemaker, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? He made it yeah. difficult for black people. And so these are these sort of revisions that black people make, mythologies that we construct. Uh, in, in order to, to we, we want to valorize uh, our own past, our own narrative and history as black people and our own leaders. When, when during his own time, even Martin Luther King was heavily criticized in black circles, even in, among black preachers. Remember, Martin Luther King wasn't even accepted in his own denomination. The National Black Convention USA Incorporated uh, had lots of conflicts with President uh, uh, Joseph H. Jackson, and I was I was told uh, and uh, have read that uh, he wanted the National Baptist Convention uh, to be much more involved in the civil rights movement in the same way Malcolm X wanted the Nation of Islam to be involved in the civil rights movement. And Joseph H. Jackson wasn't on board with that, and that it was actually quite acrimonious that, uh, and this is a rumor, that he even showed up in Nashville at the headquarters of National Baptist Convention, USA Incorporated, and Joseph H. Jackson had him forcibly removed, right? And so this is where we get uh, many of these African-American preachers who founded their own Baptist tradition, which was called the Progressive National Baptist Convention, which Martin Luther King Jr. was a part of. And so for, for us to make it seem like uh, it was just the government, just white people telling us who our leaders would be, that's a big part of it, but there were also forces Black people aren't the same and don't think about the world the same as well, religiously, social, socially, politically. And so there were forces in black communities that also participated mm -hmm. in demonizing both Malcolm and Martin. They want to get the advantage. That's, they, want, they want to find their place in the system, right? They're not trying to get rid of it. They want to find their place. But, but I also have to say that, that Malcolm understood himself after he left the Nation of Islam as helping Martin Luther King Jr. For, for, for Malcolm, you had to have an alternative, right? To make King even more acceptable. And, and I understood that um, Malcolm saw uh, Coretta Scott King one day and even explained this is what he's doing, right? That he considered himself helping Martin Luther King Jr. In other words, you give him what he wants because there are other forces that won't be so polite, right? And he considered that a help to, to Martin Luther King. Right? And so there are a lot of things that factors that participated in how we saw both these men and how Martin Luther King became seen as such a great leader. But it, it, he wasn't seen that way in his time. Okay. Right? He was a troublemaker. Even the government was late getting involved. Right? The Kennedys right, weren't on board for years um, uh, helping the civil rights movement. 
and Martin Luther King Jr. into the early, the early 60s, right? And Lyndon Johnson as well uh, in 60s and 64 and so on, right? We, we, we romanticize Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, and Malcolm X in many ways when the situation is the, uh, the uh, sociology and, and history was much more complicated. Much more complicated. Far more complicated. What are some of the advantages that you see for Martin having Malcolm there? I, I think they corrected one another. I think, you know, uh, Malcolm helped Martin think about more radical alternatives to integration. I think Martin helped Malcolm think about more mainstream, broader coalitions and ways of thinking about um, uh, how to change America and bring justice forward. I think James Cohn is right. They corrected one another and they spoke to and critiqued one another in their speeches. Sometimes it's really clear that they were talking to one another as well. And I think, I don't think we have one in the way we understand them today without the other. Without Malcolm, we don't see Martin in the way we do now. Without Martin, we don't see Malcolm as this radical in the way we do now, even though they were both, the reality is moving toward one another uh, in the way that James Cone and uh, James Baldwin argue. But they, they, but they all want the same thing for their people. They all wanted the same thing, even if the methods were different, right? So for, for Martin Luther King, the greatest sin wasn't violence in the face of oppression and anti-black violence. The greatest sin was doing nothing. That was the greatest sin. For Malcolm, uh, becoming human and bringing that into uh, reality and justice by any means necessary also meant Martin Luther King's methods, if they would work, right? And so we tend to see these two at opposite poles when in fact that's not really the reality of it. Matter of fact, Malcolm took a stand to the point where, where the, the great Elijah Muhammad literally had to just remove him totally from the nation. Because Malcolm, again, Elijah Muhammad was a religious leader. This is what I want to emphasize. Yeah, they focus on the religious, I mean, the religious, not the political, the religious aspect. And, and again, religion is always political as well, but he was first and foremost a religious leader. He was trying to prepare people for the world to come, okay. right? After the mother wheel came, came back and- he, he was just, he was stuck right there. I mean, I wouldn't say he was stuck there, but like many religions, they're waiting for the new world. They're, they're preparing people for, for sal the salvation that the new world is gonna bring after this world is gone. And that's what Elijah Muhammad was doing. Now we, we got to talk a little bit more about after the death of the great Elijah Muhammad in what, 1975, mm -hmm. there were some issues taking place on who's gonna be the next. Sure. NOI, Nation of Islam, went quite a few different ways. So there's a lot of people came aboard, a lot of people jumped ship. That's right. A lot of people moved about. So. But Wadim, now you, I got to go back to this. You make reference to the federal government. Yeah. And possibly that he was elevated to that level because of the federal government, or FBI. Yeah. So, 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 so I, I want to say. How do you come to that? I, I don't talk a lot about it in the book, but I do probably mention that there was some contact between Wadim Muhammad, the son of Elijah Muhammad, and the FBI. And that's true. I mean, that's historical and social, that's not me, that's in the, that's in the record. That they preferred him uh, probably to Minister Farrakhan. Uh, totally. And so that's, that's I mean, that, I think that's a foregone conclusion. 
Okay, now you go, we're going back to what we just just, just got to talk about. Sure, everything. sure. But who did who did prefer Malcolm or Kane? Yeah. So you you addressing that issue? I'm addressing it, uh, that issue, but again, it was also members within the Nation of Islam who consented. There's always an aspect of consent, right? So you know, black people have agency as well, and and their own perspective. So even though the government may be influential, we we can't say that the government wholly determines the choices that black people are going to make. You know, black people make choices too. They may be influenced by multiple sources, including the government, but black people have agency. And so there were also people who said, yeah, okay, Worth or Wallace at the time is going to be our leader instead of Minister Farrakhan. He took the Nation of Islam in a, in a very different direction. Matter of fact, he, he, he went against his own dad teaching. He did, but he, he was already doing that on multiple occasions, as we discussed earlier. Um, and, you know, Wallace and Malcolm would talk secretly about some of those things. So I want to I back up a little bit and, and say a few things about that as well. So Wallace moved toward, uh, once he took over, February uh, 1975, took over the Nation of Islam, moved them toward um, a more Mideastern notion of, of Islam, what some might call global Islam. But when Malcolm was put out of the Nation of Islam, probably 25% of the Nation of Islam also left with him long before that and embraced um, uh, a more Sunni form of Islam. So it wasn't just after the death of Elijah Muhammad. A large number of folks, I won't say large number of folks, but, but, but a decent number of people in the Nation of Islam left when Malcolm left and who became Sunni um, um, because of Malcolm. And that was a decade earlier uh, before Elijah Muhammad died. Elijah Muhammad died in 1975, and his son Wallace took over the Nation of Islam and did the same thing, moved him towards Sunni Islam. All right, I want to back up still and say something else about the Nation of Islam. When I write about the Nation of Islam, I'm talking about the Nation of Islam that we now understood as led by Minister Louis Farrakhan. I have to acknowledge that there have always been many nations of Islam, not just one group. And that even how we come to understand the Nation of Islam today as led by Minister Farrakhan is complicated. There were at least a dozen splinter groups when Elijah Muhammad died, groups calling themselves the Nation of Islam, claiming the right to the teachings of Elijah Muhammad, claiming legitimacy and that they were the legitimate Nation of Islam. Silas Muhammad, uh, who's a more conservative rival of Minister Farrakhan, was one such person whose Nation of Islam is still in existence to this day, who has no association with Minister Farrakhan and his Nation of Islam. There was a group called the Coalition for the Remembrance of Elijah Muhammad in Chicago. I visited there uh, when I was doing my research uh, under the leader Munir Muhammad, who died just a few years ago, who was um, at once skeptical of me. You know, folks don't know what, you know, as a scholar, what you're trying to do. And some of the names of the people who told me about him, I guess he didn't appreciate. Uh, but once he warmed up to me, he was a really kind person uh, who talked to me, um, was just, just really great. But he was a member of the Nation of Islam. And so was that group. But he wasn't part of Farrakhan's group. Um, John Muhammad, the brother of Elijah Muhammad, started a Nation of Islam. 
right? And so there are always multiple groups of people don't realize how complicated it is. There isn't this unbroken line from the founding of the Nation of Islam through Elijah Muhammad to Minister Farrakhan. In 1975, a man who had just joined the Nation of Islam recently, maybe he joined in 73, by the name of Royal Jenkins, who's still alive today, but I believe is ill, started a group in Kansas City, Missouri, called the United Nation of Islam. Uh, now they're called the Value Creators, or something about the legality of the name, United Nation of Islam, and who owns it. Uh, and I've done some work on them. He's certainly not a fan of Minister Farrakhan. They're rivals. Uh, so for him, not only are white people devils uh, because of their, their gratuitous historic violence against black people, for him, so is, it, so is Minister Farrakhan. And I've heard him say it, uh, pretty much that. Uh, but there's still other rival groups. In addition to all of these, there's a nation of Islam led by someone who calls himself the son of man uh, to this day. There's a group called the new nation of Islam. And so again, it's really complicated. And so the group that I'm talking about and that I write about in the book uh, when I get to the chapter on Minister Farrakhan, I'm talking about the group that basically starts around 1977 and 1978, which, which leaves the, the group of Warathi Muhammad or Wallace with only a small remnant and a lot of new people. So these are people who weren't historically in the Nation of Islam by and large, who joined the Nation of Islam in the late 70s when it became a new movement, right? And so, so I hope... I hope that's really, that's really clear that these are disjunctive, not coherent movements, even though the narratives of these group want to make it seem like they're, they're coherent, right? Like you go naturally from Elijah Muhammad to Minister Farrakhan, but it was much more complicated than that. Because Wadid, his son, Wadid, moved into place. Wallace. Wallace, um, yes. Who moved into place of his dad, while at the same time Farrakhan was in... Where was he living at the time? Well, Farrakhan was at, probably at, in Chicago. At, at, uh, at Temple 7? Well, so, yes, yes. So he would have been in Harlem at, at yes. Temple Number 7, yes. eventually relocated to Chicago after he reconstituted right. the Nation of Islam. And that's the language I use. Okay. Reconstituted the Nation of Islam. Uh, but for uh, Minister Farrakhan, this is just a progression of the true teachings of, of the Nation of Islam. Because for him, Wallace... Did, did violence to the teachings of, of his father, Elijah Muhammad. But at the same time, you, you made a statement about what Wallace's perspective of, of uh, the black body. Yeah, yeah. For, for, for Wallace, one of the things that was important is that black people had culture. Again, what I'm arguing in the book is that embodiment was central, that the body was really important, both as a symbol of, of the culture and the social symbol, but also as a material reality. That all of these folks, Elijah Muhammad, Malcolm X, Warwick D. Muhammad, Louis Farrakhan, were concerned about the meaning of black bodies, the meaning that these bodies carried, but also about their longevity. Um, so both material and symbol in the sense that they represented sort of an ideal uh, for them, an ideal culture. And, and uh, Wallace, or Warworth as he came to be known, wanted black people to be cultured. He thought Islam could be that vehicle to give these bodies a new sense of culture. And by Islam, I'm talking about something like a Sunni form of Islam, hmm. rather than the nation of Islam. He thought this could ennoble, and he might even use that term, black people, and that the symbols that represent them should be from Islam 
proper, so to speak. Right? And this is why he wanted to call black people Bilalians after this African slave who was close to the prophet Muhammad or Muhammad uh, um, um, Ibn Abdullah, the founder of Islam in, in 622, uh, who ended up being the first prayer caller of Islam. Right? So here's this African slave who for Warvati Muhammad then is the perfect symbol for black people who were also slaves, who was also close to the prophet Muhammad as the prayer caller, so this honored position. Black people shouldn't be African-Americans. Notice the pattern? They're not colored, they're not Negro, they shouldn't be African-Americans. Warwati Muhammad said they should be called Bilalians, after Bilal ibn Rafa, the prayer caller for the Prophet Muhammad. Now, you also make mention that, that Wallace also had a different theory about the gov by governments and that he wanted to put like a head on the people. Sure. How, how, did you, how did you address that? I, I think, if, if I'm thinking about the section you're talking about, um, yes, Wallace understood the body as sort of an analogy for government and, and the body as sort of a symbol for the perfect government. I think that's what you're referring mm -hmm. to. And this is why I argue that even for, for Walrath, the body was important. And the body should have a head, right? right? Which for him referred to its leadership. And so I argue there that the body is also a symbol for Warathi Muhammad of sort of the perfect black organization or, 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 or culture or civilization. I think that's what I'm trying to get at there. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, that the body gives us hints about how we ought to be organized as human beings and as black people. And I think that's what he was saying there. Now, let, now we're going to move on because now, <clears throat> how did Farrakhan come into the temple? Give us a little history. Backstory by Farrakhan. Farrakhan was um, born to Caribbean parents. Um, uh, I forget exactly where his mother was from. I want to say St. Kitts. Uh, don't quote me on that. His father was uh, Jamaican, who was also Jewish, uh, interestingly enough. Farrakhan's father was not the father of his siblings. Um, his siblings had a different father, and uh, their mother and father were sort of split up during the time. She has this relationship uh, with Farrakhan's father, who was um, also Caribbean, Jamaican, and conceives of this child uh, who she tries to get rid of because it's not her husband's child. Um, um, tries to get rid of him three times, Farrakhan says. When she couldn't get rid of him, uh, uh, tried to uh, abort him, she was hoping that he would, he would be born and have a dark complexion like the rest of his siblings <laughs> so that she could pass him off as um, her husband's child. Um, we see what happened. And Farrakhan uh, argues that her trying to get rid of him scarred him psychologically for his life. It even played a part, uh, and this is Farrakhan now, in how Warwardine Muhammad was able to outmaneuver him for the leadership of the Nation of Islam. Farrakhan said all of that had to do um, with the psychological damage and the scarring of being unwanted by a mother who tried to get rid of him. And so it was about in uh, uh, 1955, again, a situation where his wife had heard Elijah Muhammad first. Because at, at the time, Farrakhan was a singer. Farrakhan was a calypso singer. Um, he, he did a little jazz. He's also a concert violinist. And he uh, saw himself as having a career in entertainment. 
And uh, his, his wife is the one who uh, said he should hear Elijah Muhammad. I want to say he was in Detroit at the time, I think. Uh, could have been Chicago. And his wife said, we should go hear this, this man. It was right around 1955. Uh, and it was for the Nation of Islam's national convention that they call Savior's Day, um, which they have every February to commemorate, initially to commemorate the birth of Master Fard Muhammad. It was expanded, of course, also to honor Elijah Muhammad. And since then, it's been expanded to honor Louis Farrakhan. So, it's, so it used to be Savior apostrophe S. Now it's save yours, plural, apostrophe S. What's the difference? Well, because the difference is now Farrakhan is also considered a savior and a messiah. And so this day honors both Master Fard Muhammad, Elijah Muhammad, and Louis Farrakhan. But it was in 1955 that um, he finally ends up going to um, a savior's day, uh, their Nation of Islam National Convention. And he hears Elijah Muhammad, he's like, this man can't even speak English. <laughs> He's like, his subjects and verbs don't even agree. Like, I can't see myself being a part of that. Uh, and this is, what, this is what Farrakhan said. Um, after some time, though, um, he came to see some value in the nation of Islam and uh, joined around uh, 1955. I think it was probably later, later that year. Remember, he first encountered, uh, this would have been February, 1955. And so he joined, and then um, sometime later, Elijah Muhammad issued this edict, or what I'll call an edict, that all members of the Nation of Islam must leave entertainment, must leave entertainment. And so... Um, that applied to Muhammad Ali too. That applied to Muhammad Ali too, who was sort of a special case though, okay. right? Um, he was sort of, of a celebrity. I mean, there were some, some special circumstances and rules for him. Okay. Normally when people join the Nation of Islam, they get rid of their slave name, their surname, uh, Poole, Finley, and they take an X for the unknown and they're later given a Muslim name. Um, he gave Elijah Muhammad a name automatically uh, without having to go through that process. Elijah Muhammad? Elijah Muhammad okay. is the one who gave him that name. Okay. Correct. And Because um, Minister Farrakhan's name was, was... It was Lewis Walcott, Walcott okay. was his name, and he was from Boston. Grew up in Boston. So... Uh, Mr. Farrakhan and his wife, um, uh, Betsy, I think her name was, she became Khadijah. Well, I think her, her name was initially um, Betty okay. or Betsy, one of the two. And, uh, and they joined. Farrakhan said he had to... Malcolm's wife's name was Betty Shabazz. Betty, right. Her name was Betty, but she was, al she was already a member of the Nation of Islam when he met her. I'm just thinking about her, I know her name. Was correct, correct. And there were a couple of Betty's in the Nation okay. of Islam that were significant okay. too. And so uh, going back to Farrakhan and, and his joining, Farrakhan um, said he needed to get all this stuff out of his system in 1955. So he went to this club that was called, um, I forget how to pronounce it, but it's, it's 11 spelled backwards. Yeah, I do. I can't, I can't pronounce <laughs> 11's it. 11's Neville or something like that. A, a Jewish club. Right, that's right. Uh, again, uh, the irony there. And, um, and he said he played some calypso, he did some jazz, he wanted to get all out of his, uh, his system because he, he said he was gonna have to leave that, um, that life behind. And from that point on, uh, he committed to the Nation of Islam. So one, one other thing happened in 1955. He had this vision, this dream. Uh, he had this vision where there were two doors. And if I remember correctly, one of them said Islam. I think the other one said entertainment or something like that. And he read this as 
And I think one of them had jewels on it or something like that. It was, be, it was, it was blinged out, y'all let's, got, let's say that. Get the book. <laughs> right, right, right. It was blinged out. And, um, and the implication was he could go this entertainment route and have all these riches. He could go Islam, take this other door and, um, and have this great religious life. He chose Islam. But that vision became really important as he moved to the nation of Islam, because that was 1955. 30 years later, and I'll say this quickly, in 1985, he had this vision uh, while in Mexico, September 15th, 1985, the nation of Islam, um, Mexico is sort of important. Uh, Mexicans have been important to the nation of Islam. To this day, there's a Latino nation of Islam made up primarily of Mexican-Americans. Yeah, people, people, people don't know how significant and how interracial the nation of Islam actually is. There's a Latino nation of Islam which was started in the 80s. And he had this vision while climbing the ruins of Quetzalcoatl, of the ancient Aztec uh, deity. And he said he climbed these ruins on that day or that night, and he had this vision of this great, this mother wheel coming over the, the mountain and calling him from it. Um, so Farrakhan says it wasn't the big wheel, it wasn't the mother wheel, it was one of these smaller wheels, these 1500 baby wheels or baby planes that was in it. And he was summoned into that wheel. He said he was frightened, right? He's frightened. And he looked around for, you know, the people who were with him at the time, which uh, was probably Jabril Muhammad, who has been close to him, his wife Khadijah Muhammad or Mother Muhammad and Mother Tainetta Muhammad. Uh, and he said he heard a voice come from this vehicle, said, not them, just you. And said he was carried into it. I think three beams of light, he says, came out of it. And he was carried into this, um, this, this, this vehicle, which whisked him away to this great mother wheel in the sky where he encountered the presence of Elijah Muhammad on this wheel. Again, which is also a reference to Ezekiel's wheel in uh, Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel's vision of the wheel within a wheel within, uh, in the sky. And Master Farad Muhammad was also present on this wheel. And so it was in 1985 that I argue uh, is really significant for Minister Farrakhan distinguishing himself from all of this noise that's out here, all of these other groups and people that I just mentioned who claim that they're the legitimate nation of Islam. Since 75, 10 years. 10 years. It's going all, di all different kinds of directions. That, that's right. That's right. And so I call this an authorizing event because this is the, this is the event that Fafarakhan made him a sage and proved that he was the chosen one, that he was the right one. Not Silas, not John, not all these other people out here claiming to be the legit, legitimate nation of Islam because none of them have been in the wheel and have heard this cryptic prophecy, uh, which he said he received on the wheel from Elijah Muhammad. So this makes him, this legitimizes him as the truth, as the prophet, as the Messiah for black people, and I would argue for America, right? He holds the key to America's salvation, um, to, to black people's salvation. But I wanna say one other thing, that from 1955, to 1985 was 30 years. And this number 30 is really important oh, yeah. 
for Minister Farrakhan. It, it functions, this numerology functions. 30 functions in, in many ways as a means of, of legitimizing certain things that happen. Well, that's the same thing with Jesus. The number 30, that's right. It's a, it's a Masonic, they call it the Masonic number. That, that's right. And Ezekiel's will was some in the 30th year or something like that. So this year, so 1985, he, uh, uh, 55, he has this vision. And he's the one who's pointing out 30 years later, I'm on the wheel, right? And acknowledging that 30 is important. He says it was about 30 months while he was in the nation under Warthin Muhammad before he left. And so this number 30 becomes really significant to him. That's interesting to me too, because uh, in 1990, I took my first visit to Africa. Mm -hmm. I went to Egypt. I might go to Egypt this summer. Oh, it's a beautiful experience. It changed a lot then. I went with, I went with, with, a, with my, I would call my mentor, Dr. Vinya Hakan. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. I've, I've read him a lot. But I started this here podcast in 2020. 30 years later. 30 years later. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. <laughs> so it has some significance too. That's right. I hear that. So, I mean, I, and I, as you're speaking now, I'm kind of seeing that and feeling that, you know what I'm saying? But that, that is interesting. That is mm -hmm. interesting. So 30, 30 is a powerful number in Masonic. You mm -hmm. know, look at the story of Jesus. Mm -hmm. At 30 is when he, you know, all these great things happen. Mm -hmm. Also, Nafarakan is have really connected and moved himself through his experience to a whole nother level where he transcends all the other temple Correct. Masonic I mean, the leader, the ministers. That's right. And how, how, how do we see that? How, in your, you, you talk about it in your book. What, what started after that? Well, I mean, the, the, the main thing was this, um, uh, this experience that he claims in 1985. But after the experience, he spoke about the presidents Yes. All right. But even but even that's connected to 1985. Yeah, and so so the prophecy that he said that he he learned heard very clearly uh, from Elijah Muhammad. Farrakhan says when he held the press conference about it in uh, October First. 1989 at the J.W. Marriott. It's probably around the 19th or 20th or something like that. Okay. J.W. Marriott in Washington, D.C. He said, I heard Elijah Muhammad's voice as clearly as you are hearing mine today. That's what he says. And he said that America's planning two wars, two wars is what he said he learned from uh, Elijah Muhammad. But it took some time for them to be, the message to be clear, the meaning of the message to be clear because they were cryptic. In fact, it took about 30 months, right? There's a 30 again for it to be clear. And so here in 1989, he finally holds this press conference, which he says Elijah Muhammad told him to hold. Elijah Muhammad told him on the wheel to hold. And he's telling the world what he learned on the wheel from Elijah Muhammad. One, that the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, George Bush, Colin Powell, and others are meeting to plan a war on Libya and Muammar Gaddafi, who was a friend to, to Minister Farrakhan, which happened. The second was that America was planning a war on black people. Uh, which they would, they would call, um, they would use the term Crips and Bloods to conceal the true meaning of the war. It would really be a war on black people. And um, they would call it extremely urgent national security, according to uh, Minister Farrakhan, which would take the place, uh, would occur under the heading of a war on drugs. He said he learned about both of these 
on the wheel. And of course, we know that was true. And we know that the war on drugs with the introduction of cocaine in Los Angeles, uh, rock cocaine, uh, which then traveled all around the world, was devastating to black people and violent and killed lots of families and communities and led to mass incarceration with the help of the, uh, George Bush and, of course, uh, Joe Biden and, and some of their tough on crime bills. That is what started the, de the denigration of our community. Correct. The men was taken from home. And Farrakhan said he learned about that on the wheel. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's uh, partly what distinguished him. And that Reagan started that. President Reagan. That's right. Reagan and Bush. Right. Bush was the, uh, the vice president at the time. Yeah. Thank you for that. Farrakhan became, became bold. Correct. Because, because for him, this wheel, which was real for him and this experience was beyond any technology that the America could counter. And he saw this wheel as uh, intimately related to one, his own body and his existence as a prophet, to the nation of Islam, three to black people. And this wheel uh, was also a, a military vehicle that protects him even to this day and that the U.S. cannot counter it. That'll make you bold right there, right? He, he told the U.S. <laughs> yeah, he did. He said, he said to President Reagan, and the American government, he says, there's a power that, that protects me that you have no power against. And that he understood himself as having the power for America's salvation or its destruction in relationship to this will. So it was a really, really powerful religious experience. And he told him, if, you, if I just get a scratch on me. If I'm just scratched by you, <laughs> you will be totally destroyed, he says in a speech they, in 1986. And they, left, they stayed away from him since then. Uh, according to Farrakhan, uh, yes. <laughs> It was because of the will. But, but I also want to point out something else that happened as a result of the will. Minister Farrakhan says that when he was in this first vehicle, that there were four pilots and the pilots represented the four colors of the black race, black, brown, red and yellow. For the Nation of Islam and Minister Farrakhan and Elijah Muhammad, all of these are black, Asians, Native Americans, uh, uh, Latinx communities and those of us who have uh, African diasporic uh, and, and African uh, heritage. And so when the Nation of Islam talks about black, they're talking about something that's different from how we talk about black in America. They're talking about an expansive human family that they want to understand as black. And so this, this wheel experience made that real for Louis Farrakhan. And so subsequent to this experience in 1985, he went on what he called the world, his world friendship tour. I think there were two where he went to all kinds of uh, nations, particularly in the Middle East and Africa. You said he was undetected. The American system didn't know he was gone? Well, they, they knew he was gone, but he said the wheel protected him okay. leaving and coming back into the country. But it was really a, a sort of an interracial world friendship tour that he went on. He went visit uh, mostly Muslim countries. Mostly Muslim countries, but not exclusively Muslim countries. But and, most, and, in Africa, he traveled through Africa. Then. That's right. That's right. 
uh, and the Near East. So he, uh, he met with Gamal, the, the president Near, of Egypt. But I learned that the Near East is in Africa. Well, well, well like or, or at least Egypt is in Africa. I mean, they, they try to geographically make it seem like it's in the Middle East, but it's actually but, in Africa. But the Middle East is just a, like a term. Sure it is. is it, what continent, it's, it's a construct. What continent is the East? It's, it's a construct. So if you, if you ask what continent the Middle East is on. And it's a construct that tries to remove Egypt from Africa, right, actually, right. and locate it in yeah. the Near East or the Middle East. East. Yeah. But, but the point I wanted to make is that subsequent to all of this and this experience on the wheel, you see Farrakhan being explicit about making interracial relationships that correspond to how Elijah Muhammad understood black. The same thing Malcolm did. Yes, so correct, traveling. correct. So he made uh, relationships with Asian communities, Native American communities, especially among the Hopi and the Navajo, Latinx communities, especially among Mexican-Americans. Uh, but, but Koreans and Japanese and so on. And this is the aspect of the nation of Islam that gets missed because it gets reduced to this sort of insular oh, just, just black group. group. People, yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. The nation of Islam has far more legitimate interracial relationships than probably any religious group In that I know of yeah. on their own terms. In other words, they don't have to become white. They don't have to become Mormon. They are on their own terms, and yet they're in relationship with the nation of Islam. He was really close to Gaddafi. And Gaddafi did what? Offered him what? Oh, a billion dollars. How much? Uh, to start a, 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 an African-American bank, actually. Oh, and Farrakhan said the, the U.S. blocked it. Yeah, Gaddafi was going to give Farrakhan a billion dollars, billion dollars Correct. to start a bank. That's, that's what the nation of Islam claims. But the yes. money never could get here. Correct. Correct. Because they wanted Farrakhan to, to uh, register as a foreign agent. Uh, to receive that money, which he said he wasn't going to do. And to, and to rest as a foreign agent, what that was about? Um, I'm not exactly sure what that was about in terms of the, the politics, but I think it, 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 it le delegitimized for Farrakhan the sense that he was deeply American. Right, that's what they would have and, and black, right. Yeah, right. In other words, right. he'd have had trouble doing any business in the U.S. Uh, co correct. Because correct. he's been a foreign. He would have been a foreign, a foreign agent. So that means that he had to do business with the, with the, with the federal government under their terms. As, 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 a, as a foreign agent. As a foreign agent. Yeah, right. correct. So these people are always, always thinking ahead, right? That's right. So he never got the money from Gaddafi. Matter of fact, Gaddafi was going to give him $2 billion, what I heard. All right. And under uh, African, African leadership, Barack Obama, the same leaders that, that was close to uh, Farrakhan? Farrakhan, under Obama, they was killed. Yeah, I mean, there were, there were a lot of problems um, they, they, under, under Obama, they right. Killed, they killed Gaddafi. Yeah, Gaddafi right. They killed that's, that's correct. And well, because one of the things that Gaddafi was trying to do was to unify Africa and, and to unify it under a currency that was currency. separate from the from the euro, yeah, right. especially right. and the and the and the American dollar because, because that was gold backed, by the way. Yeah, and they would the U.S. couldn't have that. That would have been a powerful currency. And I heard I heard uh, Saddam Hussein was going to do the same. Sure, and so this isn't conspiracy. <laughs> this isn't conspiracy. Yeah. So, right, so, these are historical so, facts. So they just take them all the way out. That's right. They that's demonize right. them, then take. That's that, that's that, what happens. Um, Barack Obama was black. First and foremost, he was an American president who had deep ties to uh, the war machine, what Cornel West called the war machine, and corporate America. And so we, we, we make mistake, a mistake when we try to associate Barack Obama with us and African Americans and our interests. He was an American uh, and was deeply connected to elite American military and corporate interests. And that drove his policies. 
and what he did. And I was never under any illusion from the very beginning uh, that he was anything other than that. I wasn't on that bandwagon. Mm -hmm. My eyes were open uh, very clearly from the very beginning. But, but I want to say something else. I want to go back, if, if we can, to talk about uh, the Nation of Islam being interracial. Uh, since they are uh, often accused of being anti-black or anti-white, um, uh, which is something that I also say that the facts don't don't fit. Uh, what they've often tried to do is to clarify how white supremacy destroys um, not just black lives, but but how it destroys relationships and, and cultures and civilizations uh, and destabilizes them all over the world. Uh, this coalition of both American and European powers. But I want to suggest that the claim also falls apart when, you, when one sees how, for example, the Nation of Islam also has uh, an official relationship with Scientology, right? And you, you, I've said sarcastically, you can't get whiter than that, right? Um, and they do have a relationship with Scientology, where uh, Scientology has trained many members of the Nation of Islam uh, in what they call auditing. Uh, which I don't completely understand, and I have a little sense of it, um, but as a, as a means of overcoming uh, the psychological effects of white oppression. Um, but, but also that Farrakhan has many uh, close white associates, like, like since you're Catholic, Father Flager, mm -hmm. um, um, uh, who he calls my brother in Christ, uh, by the way. And so when people take a very serious look at the nation of Islam, and the actual data and the, uh, the, the historical and cultural circumstances in which they emerge. For me, the stereotypes, um, which I think are anti-black, fall apart. They, they, don't, they don't hold. Because how can a religion that's anti-white have these relationships with all these white people, uh, such as Scientology and individuals, such as these Catholic priests like Father Flager? But that's how the system, like you said earlier, have continue to control the narrative. Well, yes, and also because people don't read yeah. for themselves. They, 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 they get their information nowadays from the internet, and it's hard to trust anything about black people on the internet, especially about the Nation of Islam. Uh, and I argue you, you can hardly trust anything. I mean, you read my book, you get a totally different perspective on the Nation of Islam, and that's because I read almost everything. Well, I and you. I had to to write that book. And that book is written on a whole other level. Well, I, I, I appreciate that. So I'm going to tell you, you got to get the book, but you better get a dictionary to go along with <laughs> I've actually heard that from a, from a few people who, who themselves have, have PhDs and are scholars. Like, I man, appreciate that. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's just mind-blowing. It's just, but then let's get back to Farrakhan. Sure. So this experience on the wheel, the mother wheel, I mean, I like that term when you look, yeah. at, it, look at it this way, the mother wheel, that is the most powerful thing in the universe, yeah. right? Yeah, the mother is important too, because I also want to see Farrakhan's experience on the mother wheel as, as this sort of psychoanalytic experience of being able, envisioning oneself returning to the womb and being reborn as someone very, very new and different. And he emerges from this experience within the mother wheel as this prophet, right? Which is different from who he was before. This person with this complicated background uh, whose mother tried to abort him. He emerges from this experience totally new. And so I want to see it again, this mother wheel as his real mother. And I think this is how, and, and who actually indicate who he really is. 
this powerful prophet who's protected by this great craft, this vehicle, who's the leader of this religion, who holds the key to the fate of the world, and in particular, the West and America, right? And so this is, this is he's, re, he's totally reborn now, you know, from this experience. And, and, and just to hear you say that, what you have done, the system have done a you know, great job demonizing so-called our leaders. Yep. As Malcolm X, you know, Martin Luther King, and Farrakhan, but now you you bring you making them human again. You you bringing life to a being that exists. That's what I'm trying to do. That, I mean, that has a greater purpose. That's right. Not just for himself. That's right. But for all. That's right. And so you know, at, at times when I when I read my book, I was like, well, damn, you know, I'm because I'm because at points I'm pretty critical, right? right? Uh -huh. But at the same time, I'm trying to humanize the movement uh, and these figures I talk about, Malcolm X, Farrakhan, now, and other and okay, others. Now, as a as a professor, as a religious, what you call it again? I'm a scholar of religion. Scholar. Mm -hmm who normally, you know, you take different approaches and concerns and mm -hmm. for philosophical views of religion, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you challenge that. But you brought into, into, into light the man himself. I try to do both. So I try to do both. Okay. I try to make sense of the like religion for people, people who don't understand them. It's my job to make sense of what they're doing. What does this stuff mean? Why is it significant? And this is why I argue it has to be, be seen over against this history of gratuitous violence against black bodies. This, this, this over-determining violence that limits who black people can be structurally, who says they're inferior, in fact, they're slaves. And so I try to, I try to bring to light what they're actually doing over against that context, while at the same time being critical of what that might look like. Right. And how how that might look better um, uh, from my perspective with regard to black people. And then you bring in the man in to say, OK, now they're doing the same thing to him that they're doing to the whole black body. In other words, putting it in a place where they can control it and your thoughts and also with the man, too. But now you lifted the man up saying. This man had a vision, yeah. and this stuff came to light. Yeah. At the same thing I see when I'm looking at a story around Africa. Mm -hmm. They show all the beautiful animals in Africa, all the beautiful trees, the plants, but don't talk about the people. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know? That's right. How are you not going to talk about you know, the people? I mean, without the people, none of this stuff don't look like anything. It's, it's a delicate balance mm -hmm. to hold intention, the fact that these people are human with a history and social life which includes their religion, which has to be understood in its own context, on the one hand, and also being critical as a scholar. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really delicate tension to hold those two together in such a way that gives us a new view well, that, that I think is accurate, that great, I think is important. You've done a great job in your book right. doing it. All right, thank All right. you very much. Okay. I, yeah. I, just, I just want to make sure, because at first I'm thinking, okay, now, he critical of the Nation of Islam, He's very critical of Farrakhan. Yeah, but I, but, I, but I also understand what they're doing. And I understand this narrative, for example, about white people devils. It makes perfect sense to me. How else do you make sense of the fact that you can, they can just walk up to you and kill you historically for 400 years and there's no recourse? Like that you have to find a way to live in this world 
And one of the ways of doing that is to try to explain it through symbols and mythology. And this is why the mythology, while not necessarily scientific and historical, makes perfect sense to me. They're trying to make sense of, of all this violence against black people that is never ending and unbroken. That, that, that is always something that black people have to navigate from multiple points that is structured in every part of American life. I was traveling, I wanna say I was um, in the area of False River, New Roads, I think is the area, and I went by one of, I think it was a visitor center. And the visitor center, the old uh, white woman uh, was on staff that day, was trying to tell me that it was a plantation house on a, um, on a slave plantation where slaves lived. And I made the statement that it was, oh, so it was a slave house. She, cor she corrected me. No, it was a plantation house, <laughs> right? And that was just one example of, of how slavery and the overwhelming violence of it becomes sanitized in the narratives that people, institutions, businesses, and the state then uh, um, gives to the to the public. Yeah, you know, because really, if you, it, it really was what you call a concentration camp. Well, well, yeah, yeah. Well, and the concentration camp actually, you know, has its roots in the black experience. Actually, yeah, as a yeah. as a concept, right. um, you know, it actually it's a term that actually comes from South Africa. Oh, okay. uh, that was first used, yeah, in the Boer Wars in, in South Africa. As does the word Holocaust. Actually, comes first from the black experience, um, uh, even before uh, World War II, uh, lynchings and slavery. Uh, were called the Holocaust. Uh, 1909, I, f I forget the woman, of the anti-lynching campaign with the NAACP. She does a speech in 1909 where she calls lynching the Negro Holocaust, right? Uh, World War II wasn't until 1941. Uh, Pearl Harbor, December 7th, I think, 1941. The Black Holocaust and Black suffering was actually a condition that enabled uh, the Jewish Holocaust, that, that even Hitler was actually even learning from white people in America Specifically, this is not conjecture, specifically, um, that he then enacted on uh, the European, European Jews. Uh, even had a student at the University of Arkansas, I forget his name, who was studying, uh, and studying how white people treated, treated black people. Uh, and there was even you know, a history uh, of Germany in Africa, um, in Namibia, right? The, the, the Holocaust in Namibia, uh, Otto von Bismarck, uh, who just killed thousands and thousands slaughtered black people was a German. And so there's all this history of, that I argue without which we might not see uh, the, the Jewish Holocaust by, by Hitler. That without the American anti-black violence, that, that, that this offered the blueprint and the condition that made that possible. And so we don't talk enough about the violence in America. Uh, we live in a day where we're trying to suppress black history uh, African-American history, critical race theory, nobody really knows what that is, right, right, when they talk about it. Um, it was a gratuitous, deeply, deeply violent experience both for Africans, those of African descent, and Native Americans. Deeply violent. That enabled all kinds of other violence all around the world. This is the thing I, I think Du Bois was trying to emphasize when he understood race as really significant. He didn't want to do away with the concept of race. Du Bois thought that there was something that these different social groups had to offer to humanity, 
that ultimately would take humanity somewhere, wherever that was, whatever that ultimate vision and flourishing of humanity would be, Du Bois thought that maintaining these groups and cultivating their gifts was important to fulfilling uh, humanity's ultimate, ultimate destiny. It's kind of like what you're saying. So it wasn't just black people, even though you know, black people were special too, it was all social groups that had something to offer to humanity. Ours just got suppressed, right? And still. Yeah. But yet still, like my Angela so and my Angela say, we rise. Mm -hmm. So who are we? You know, that the whole world imitates you. Yeah. You was a enslaved people for years. But everything you do, the world, from the music. That's right. The dance. That's right. The smoothie, the sweat, everybody want to be. And, and and I'll go further say the good and the bad. Good and the bad. <laughs> no matter which. No matter which. We do it on a level that nobody else can do. Right, 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 right. Now right. let's get back to Farrakhan. Sure. Now after that experience on the wheel, he challenged the U.S. government, the president and the vice president themselves. Mm -hmm. He also, years later, he, he put on the Million Man March. Yeah. Which I was there. Yep. Did you attend? I was in Virginia. I tried to get there you, myself. You right down the street. I, 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 didn't, I didn't make it. Oh, man. I didn't make well, it. Well, I was there. So... All that came about because of that experience That's right. on the wheel. That's right. There's a Jewish scholar by the name of Michael Lieb who died not long ago. He has a book called Children of Ezekiel. It's a great book. L-I-E-B or L-E-I-B, okay. one, one of the two. Right. Wonderful book. It's not specifically on the nation of Islam, but there are chapters on the nation of Islam. And um, he talks about there being four or five enactments, he calls enactments, of... Um, Minister Farrakhan, subsequent to the wheel, in enacting his role as prophet, for example, that he gained from this experience on the wheel. And the Million Man March was one of them, Michael Lieb argues. And, um, and as you know, there's never been anything like that. Um, yeah, never. Matter of fact, the, the, that same evening after we, I, I, I was my head of my best friend who was living there in DC, Demetri William, who's now no longer who's no longer with us. So I went up there, you know, just to be there. So we we decided, my friend D, he always liked to be be placed on time or early. <laughs> so we went there early that morning and said, man, I gotta get there early. I said, man, ain't gonna be that many people. He said, man, we need to get there early. So we got there. We were some of the first people there. We were we very were, good. We, we was on the the, uh, the steps of the Capitol. Oh, very nice. So we was on the steps of the Capitol, and from there, so but we they set up this uh, this place there where they're gonna be speaking at, so we can see we in a good view of all this, right? Mm -hmm. Not knowing that the sun gonna start beaming down. Oh gosh! All this concrete, so it's you know it's got really hot. But as far as the eye can see, I'm seeing people. Yeah. I'm seeing men yeah. look like me. That's right. And a lot of women showed up too. That's right. They were there too. I'm like, so we, I'm on the stairs, so I can see the Washington Monument. I can see the uh, the little the, 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 the water at, whatever they call that. I'm looking at all this. I'm saying, man, they got a lot of people here. But the report that evening was. Yeah, that's right. Maybe two hundred fifty thousand. Oh, they minimized, and I've heard maybe eight hundred thousand. Yeah, but it started out with two hundred fifty thousand. Okay. That day, it started out with two hundred fifty thousand. Yeah. But it knew that wasn't sufficient because when you show the pictures, it's going to show more. There, 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 there's a way the mall is divided where they can sort of estimate yeah, how, right, right. right? And that evening before when I arrived, we went out. You don't see nobody. Yeah. 
But you know what happened, right? On that day. On that day, buses, bus loads of people. From everywhere. Everywhere. So before we knew it, this place is, is in, you know, we, we encage, really, mm-hmm. with bodies of people. Now we're talking about yeah. bodies. Yeah, yeah. Everywhere. And the people who, who I know who were there said that, in their estimation, there were more than a million people. Oh, there. it had to be. There were more it than a million. had to be. Because people was past the monument yeah. on the back street that you can't see. Right. But because I'm, I'm, I'm at the steps, mm-hmm. I can see that. So I'm going to be petty here. I'm going to be petty. On that day where there were more than a million black men from all over the country and probably even internationally, there was no violence. Black people understood were helping to clean up. They were courteous to one another. But on January 6th, was it 2021? White people get together at the Capitol and they see the exact opposite. Exact opposite. Violence. They're breaking stuff. They're, they're looking for people to abduct and to hurt. But who's perceived as a criminal? in this country. Primarily black men are criminalized. And yet on that day, there were at least a million black men in one spot and no trouble. None, zero. And I think everybody lift each other up. And that's when you got to say, we can't let this happen again. Right. Well, that's that's also why I wanted to I wanted to draw that analogy because I you know I know yeah, it's a little yeah, petty, yeah. but I just wanted yeah. I just would say when they got together on the mall, with what would be a lot less concern in terms of policing and military, look what happened. The people that support this country, they are the patriots. Patriots. Mm-hmm. We got to support. We got to make sure that thing is done right. Them, yeah. Them criminals. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But but not on whatever October sixth or seventh or whatever nineteen ninety six. But the people at the 1995 million man march mm-hmm. who was there in harmony and unison get a whole different take on it. And that's one hundred percent connected to Minister Farrakhan's experience on the wheel. I also want to I also want to say, contrary to um, uh, how we view the Nation of Islam. Uh, that women were were actually quite instrumental in putting the Million Man March together. As always. In particular, I want to say Claudette Marie Mohammed, who was Minister Farrakhan's protocol minister. I don't know if she's still living. I have to look her up. Uh, I'm always going to love her and respect her. She tried to make, when I was doing my research, an interview between Minister Farrakhan and I happened, and it just didn't happen. I couldn't do it, but, but she told me she was going to try her best, and I will always believe that she did, that she tried to make that happen. She was also instrumental in the Million Man March hmm. and the planning. So you had a chance to speak to her about that? I did, and I saw uh, Minister Farrakhan up close in Chicago, probably in maybe 2007 or so, and the minister who invited me, who told me that uh, he was going to be there, um, said that he'd make sure I met Mr. Farrakhan, and that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. That didn't happen. And, and I met uh, Claudette Marie Muhammad on that day, and I had a letter, which the, the minister of the church that time told me to write. She, being its protocol minister, was like, can you type it? <laughs> it wasn't typed. But had I known, I would have prepared that. But the minister told me to write something, and he would make sure Farrakhan get it. Apparently, he didn't really have, they were friends, but he didn't have that kind of insight and, and connection that she did, because had I known, I would have typed the letter and she would have given it to him, and I probably would have been able to meet him. Uh, so I was disappointed. I mean, cause we were just feet from one another on that day in Chicago. It was a United Methodist Church uh, at the time. 
Well, I, I guess I, I had a chance to shake his hand at one time he was in Baton Rouge. That's the furthest I, I Okay. And right now he's almost 90 years old. Right? He's almost 90 years old. I think he was born in, well, he, he might have just turned 90. Well, I think he was born in 1933, I think. No, 1930. I think he was born in 33. Mm-hmm. Oh, so he is, uh, that would make him 90 years old. Yeah. And he was, now, three, two or three years ago, he's supposed to be stepping down, but that never happened. Well, yes and no. So um, after he got sick, I think it was in 2006 or 2007, during the time I was trying to meet him, I think he had been ill. What he started was a council, sort of an executive council to carry out the business of the Nation of Islam. And that council, I forget what they call them, the name, but that council, their 13 members are still in existence to this day. And uh, it's made up of, of leadership, men and women in the Nation of Islam. Uh, Avil Muhammad, who just died, who was the minister of the, the mosque in Atlanta, for example, was part of that council. And so to a certain extent, he answers to the council. And like he says, he really can do what he wants to do, but he tries to bring what he wants to do in line with the council. Because after he's gone, the council then will, will carry out the vision of the Nation of Islam. And when he got sick, I want to say maybe it's around 2006, as I believe when he established that council of, of 13. So he sort of stepped down, he sort of didn't. He established a different, uh, in a, another layer of leadership in the Nation of Islam. Now, now we go, as we come to a conclusion, now first of all, we want to, want to say that this is, we, we are in the month of Ramadan, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, right now. Can you give us a little history of what Ramadan is? Ramadan is about a, it's about a month long. It's, um, it's really one of the five major uh, pillars of, of Islam. And to a certain extent, it really commemorates the coming into being of the Quran, uh, the revelation of the Quran, according to uh, uh, Muhammad uh, ibn Abdullah, uh, the revelation from the, uh, the April, um, angel Gabriel. Oh, okay. So Ramadan sort of uh, commemorates that. But, and, and, but also it has something to do with the cosmos. Is it the cosmos? Yes. Sure, I mean, I mean. Because it has to do with the lighting of the, of the universe, of the, of the Venus, yeah. Mars. And yeah, yeah, all of that. But, but you know, when we're talking cos cosmology, of course, you know, there's also this sense that um, uh, Islam is divine because of this contact with the, the Archangel Gabriel, right? So that all says something about their, their cosmology of, so could, of yeah, Islam, cause, too. Because Ramadan is, is celebrated it's different times of the year. And it's because of the, the line. Oh, sure. Of course. Of course. I hear where you're going right. in terms of the cosmos. You're talking about, you know, astronomy to, yeah, a, to a certain right, extent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I also want to say, you know, uh, historically, uh, what ties this to um, other movements um, in early Islam, you know, they didn't have a scripture. But uh, the Prophet Muhammad and the community deeply revered um, these religious communities that had scripture. Uh, the name form in Arabic was the Ahl al-Kitab, or the people of the book, um, which means these people who had, who had scripture, um, which includes Jews and Christians and so on. And so the people of Islam, or of that early community, longed you know, for their own, their own sacred text. And so that's sort of the background of, of some of that too. Um, thus, uh, we get the, the revelation of the Quran, according to uh, the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, from the angel Gabriel. You end your book saying that, in your, in, from your view, your perspective, there needs to be a lot more research and work done of, 
and the, of the women in the NOI. Yes. Why you why you made this thing? Well, but so so a couple a couple things that interested me here. I didn't want this book to be read as a book that was only about men or intentionally just about men. I chose the subject um, because of the role that these particular leaders played in the formation of the Nation of Islam who happened to be men. Um, but I also thought that women have been significant in the Nation of Islam. And so I wrote this appendix, highlighted work, also critiqued work on uh, women in the Nation of Islam, uh, which I found very limited, by the way, and argue that there needs to be more attention to the religious meaning of women's embodiment in the nation of Islam. And I offer also, also offer a thesis of, of what I think women mean in the nation of Islam. But, but from my perspective, my book points to the need for more work in that direction. And so I appreciate you uh, pointing that out. That's a really important aspect of my book. And it's not just an appendix, it's not just a throwaway section, my appendix is probably 25, 30 pages long. It I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's a real... I, I was surprised. <laughs> right, right, right. I, I, mean, I mean, my epilogue, my epilogue. 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 Uh, you know, it's a real yeah. engagement with scholarship on women in the nation of Islam. I tried to read everything that had ever been published. Everything I get my hands on that was on women in the nation of Islam, I tried to read. Yeah. You say like the, the woman, the womb, and... Women, uh, wheels, wombs, and women, women is what I call my epilogue. And that's because I see a connection between this UFO stuff that we find in the Nation of Islam, Farrakhan's attention to the womb, uh, which this UFO symbolizes, and women, uh, that they're sort of all connected there in the Nation of Islam for the production of gods or, or, or Farrakhan's, okay. right? Because he understands himself along the lines of Abraham and Jesus and Muhammad and so on. I, th I think Eula Taylor does really wonderful work on the nation of Islam, I have some issues with uh, the, the category that she uses to interpret uh, women's experiences in the nation of Islam, but I think she does really solid, really important work. I admire her, respect her greatly. But within the nation of Islam, uh, I wrote what may have been the first essay on Mother Tainetta Muhammad, who was one of the wives of Elijah Muhammad, uh, as they later framed it. Uh, she was initially a um, a secretary, one of the early secretaries with whom Elijah Muhammad had children. Uh, around the 90s or so, I think, they became wives. Uh, and um, Tainetta Muhammad, or Mother Tainetta, was one of the most important thinkers in the Nation of Islam. And I wrote uh, what I believe was probably the first full essay just on her alone. Uh, and so I want to pay respect, of course, uh, uh, both to scholars who have done work in this area, but also women themselves uh, within the nation of Islam. I mean, Mother Tainetta may have been more important as a sort of a theologian mm. than probably anybody other than Minister Farrakhan. I mean, she was ex exceedingly significant in the nation of Islam. Okay, so, I, I, didn't, I haven't met her, but I had a chance to see her in person so uh, in Detroit. This, it, was a, it was a 12 year project this this project took a long time um, to come to light yeah it was probably probably at least 12 years uh, which is why you get some of these later pieces at the end of the book right. the afterword and then the postscript because you know things kept happening but that was while I'm trying to get yeah, the word yeah, published keep, you had to keep it updated. keep keep it current yeah keep, keep it, it current yeah and, and but that was that was pretty good but I got to say again that your your viewpoints your perspective it was such a touching book moving book so many di different dimensions yep. in the book 
when you say esoteric, es esoterica, esoteric. and mm -hmm. and whatever else you can think of, yeah. Yeah. it's all true. I tried to make the book as nuanced and as complicated as I could <laughs> because the Nation of Islam is nuanced and complicated. Black people are nuanced and complicated. Human beings are complicated. That's so the language that. required the same nuance and, and, and complication to, for precision uh, to try to get at the meaning of the religion of the Nation of Islam and what they were doing. It required, you know, I appreciate that, a command of certain theories and methods and language to try to express to the reading public what's going on here. And, um, and that required a lot of work uh, and study on my part. Now, you know, some people might say, well, yeah, that sounds great, uh, Brother Stephen, but it sound like, seems like to me you just want to show people how smart you were. Well, I mean, I don't know that, that they, they may say that, but you don't have a PhD, you, you got it, right? I say I got it. Well, okay, there, all right, all right, there. all right. Well, I mean, you have to sit with it, but, like my, my, like my uh, colleague, uh, Dr. Biko Mandela Grace says, you sit with it. Let, let it marinate. You, you wrestle with it, you, you let it marinate. And, um, and then it becomes clear, it, it, it comes to you, well, I learned, what I'm saying. I you can't get it just on one read because I, it's complicated. I learned, I learned a lot of words. One word was ofuscate, how do you say word? Ofuscate? <laughs> oh, obfuscate? Obfuscate, I yeah. know O-F-U-S-C-A-T-E. That's probably obfuscate, obfuscate. What that mean again? Well, it's, it's a word that I actually learned from my own studies. Obfuscate means to um, sort of to conceal, conceal yeah, to, to conceal something. And uh, like, like you and I were talking, uh, we might say that America, through all kinds of machinations and structures, tries to obfuscate uh, the true history and talents uh, and contributions of African Americans. That's why, that's, why, that's why I liked it. But I, right. When I saw that word, I never heard that word before. <laughs> but now you used the word that I, that I just learned with that word as uh, Trump, Trump, Trump Kate. Truncate, Truncate, yes. And I say, oh, yes. Yeah, well, and, and, and again, we've, we've talked about that too. America tries to truncate African Americans from its history mm. and act like we just started here, that we don't have a, that like, that, like there's no connection to Africa and that Africa didn't give something to the world, including civilization, right? <laughs> it tries to truncate uh, the history of African Americans to cut us off from an essential part of, of who we are. Uh, what I'm trying to do in my work is to remember, uh, is mm. to pull these parts back together and use the language that I can, that I have, that's both my language and the language of scholarship to, to, to pull a picture together for people to make sense of African-American religion and culture, and in this case, the Nation of Islam, that they won't get anywhere else, to help mm. them understand in much more precise ways what's going on. Well, you, you definitely accomplished that, my brother. Thank you. But I also want to say that uh, as, as we truly enjoyed having you on Count Time, enjoyed you being I appreciate here, it. Being a part of it. And thank you for, for you know, sending me a copy of your book. I need for you to sign it before I leave. Of too. course. I, I had a chance to, I, it normally takes me months to read a book. It took me, I read this book in a couple of weeks. Very ago. good. Very and, good. Uh, and also I know he has, that he's a member of the Omega Side. Five. And so is Minister Parkon. Oh, I didn't know that. I mentioned I, that in the, I, the, the last sentence of my book. I, I, I didn't read the last sentence. Then. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Parkon, in his last, one of his last speeches um, uh, called Swan Song, he leaves the podium, and I say, like a great Messiah, he returns. He comes to the podium and says, where are my Omega brothers at? Right? 
And I make the connection, of course, uh, because uh, Omega's a uh, few years ago, he actually pledged and didn't finish when he was in college. Oh. And Omega's uh, uh, made him a brother uh, 2017, 2019, oh, something like that. And he mentions that in that speech. Mm -hmm. And I make that connection between him and me oh, yeah. uh, at the end of the book. Yeah, well, you know, uh, John Clinton is Omega. That's right. That's right. <laughs> made the dog, Very recently. Who made the song uh, Atomic the Dog. Atomic Dog and yeah, the Mothership yeah. Connection. That, that's right. Now that's hold right. on now. So you Omega sci-fi. Correct. To the day you die. That's right. That's right. Now, so that means that nothing but the dog in you, right? Well, well, when it depends on how we understand dog. If we understand dog as, as tenacious, which is where the term comes from, someone who doesn't give up, okay. then yes. I'm, okay. I'm tenacious. But why you got, like a, why, like why, a dog. Why, why there's nothing but cats up in this house? Well, well, <laughs> I love these cats. That, that's all I have to say. I don't see a dog Cat, nowhere. Cats, cats don't get enough credit for their, for their courage now. Cats don't get enough credit. You, you Google the internet, you'll see cats challenging dogs and alligators and, and people and all kinds of stuff, man. I, I'm just saying. I understand. I'm just, I'm just saying. I understand. You'll make a sci-fi. Hey. A cute dog. Cat, cat is, I see cats in cat is also a metaphor for a certain kind of black embodiment, a certain oh. kind of style of black men, particularly in the 70s, right? Yeah. Someone who was cool, black who was understood a cat. <laughs> black cat, that's right. Hey. There it black is. Cat. So the black cat who's an omega, <laughs> uh, <but> we good. <laughs> We're going to leave it right there. All right. Once again, my brother, All thank right. you. Welcome to Countdown. I appreciate that. Thank you. Man can shackle the hand. Man can shackle the feet. But only you can shackle the mind. The mind is free to travel wherever you dare to take it. Welcome to Countdown Podcast.